1993, the Nevada legislature recognized the rights of consenting adults to engage in any type of sexual behavior that they desire. And so that means that sodomy, including oral and anal sex, are perfectly legal between consenting adults. There are some exceptions. One, you cannot engage in acts of sodomy in public. And two, you cannot lawfully engage in acts of sodomy with a minor. In 2003, the United States Supreme Court in the case of Lawrence versus Texas basically said that it's unconstitutional for states to have any laws outlawing sodomy. However, these types of restrictions, including actions with minors or actions in public, can still be regulated by the state. Perhaps no state has been more affected by the foreclosure crisis than the state of Nevada. And in the wake of the foreclosure crisis, what we're seeing is that law enforcement has really ramped up investigation as to what the root causes or what they feel the root causes of the mortgage crisis are. So right now in the state of Nevada, we're seeing a lot of prosecutions where allegations of mortgage fraud come into play. And mortgage fraud encompasses a wide range of scenarios involving deceptive mortgage practices. It can involve false information provided to a lender. It can involve artificially high appraisals that help to in, uh, entice the bank to lend a large amount of money for the purchase of a home. It can involve straw buyers, all of which are prosecuted in Nevada under the title of mortgage fraud. Here in Nevada, one common example of mortgage fraud is what is known as a false loan modification scheme. This often involves someone trying to prey on a distressed homeowner by perhaps offering to reduce principal, avoid foreclosure, and allow someone to stay in their home. Oftentimes, that person will take money up front but then not do anything for that distressed homeowner, and they often go into foreclosure anyway. Another common example of mortgage fraud here in Nevada is using false information on loan applications. Now, today, lending standards have become much more strict, and uh, lenders will want to verify your income and your assets and your debts and, and your taxes be, before authorizing a loan. But back in the day before the market crashed, there were lots of mortgages that were issued based on what was called stated income. And uh, these sort of gained a term in the industry, liar loans. Liar loans because people would lie. They, they would lie about their income. They would lie about the assets that they had for collateral. They would lie about their debts and, and liabilities. And none of this w w was really verified. And what I think a lot of people didn't realize or, or didn't sort of pay attention to at the time is that they were signing under penalty of perjury that all of this information was true and correct. 
And today what we're seeing is state and federal authorities going back and prosecuting many of these people for mortgage fraud, for perjury, based on this misinformation uh, that they put in their applications. And the reality of the situation is that a lot of these uh, uh, listing agents and and uh, escrow officers and and lenders had an incentive to push these deals through. They wanted their commissions, and so they would really coach the loan applicants in what they needed to say to meet the lending standards to get the loan even if that meant providing misinformation. And the culture in the industry sort of became that that this was just how things were done. These were how deals were made. This is how people got their homes. This is how people made their investments. Everybody was doing it. It wasn't seen as something that was unethical or illegal. And people who did provide misinformation and perjure themselves never imagined that they would someday face the consequences of being prosecuted for a felony and going to prison for what they did. Straw buying usually involves a situation where someone wants to buy a home, but they lack good credit. So usually that person will recruit someone else, often known as the straw buyer, with good credit to stand in for them in order to obtain a loan from a bank. That person can find themselves facing bank fraud because they deceived the bank into providing them a loan for someone who actually did have bad credit. It's not uncommon to see a straw buyer scheme where the straw buyer is really more of an unwitting a victim to the sophisticated scheme of, of other players. So uh, a straw buyer may be offered several thousand dollars to sign documents for the purchase of a property where there were third parties like the buyer or the mortgage lender or the realtor that had a lot more to gain than the straw buyer. And the straw buyer is the one that's being prosecuted and made the scapegoat for the entire transaction. The main statute here in Nevada with regard to mortgage fraud is NRS 205.372, which makes it a felony to be involved in a deceptive plea agreement. What was the threat of of, uh, sentence length? Well, given at that time, as you may recall, uh, you had several very high-profile white-collar crime cases, including the Madoff case. So I was very concerned that if I were to go to trial and lose, which I felt was almost a certainty, that I would be sentenced to 20 to 25 years. That was a very significant likelihood, at least 20, and I wasn't willing to live with that. So you agreed to take the plea agreement, anticipating that you would get 10 and what was your reaction when the judge handed down a, a sentence of, a, of, of much longer than 10? Very disappointed. Uh, you know, my, my attorneys and family were very, very disappointed. No, I, I wouldn't say I was shocked uh, because, of course, 14 years is far greater than 10. But, and yet, when you're involved in these cases, as I soon became involved with in prison on a regular basis, what you find is the amount of years are, are given out by these judges, you know, so so freely and so comfortably by them, 
that it's hardly surprising that uh, I did get the 14. And how old were you when this, when the sentence came down? 47 years old. And you went into the prison system at 47 years old with a 14 year sentence. Where did you begin? I began at FCI Loretto in Pennsylvania, far from home. Uh, That's another question that's often asked of me. Why would they send you so far from home? But what you learn in this system is, as I'm sure you you have found yourself, is that oftentimes it's just by chance that it's it's wherever a bet is available. There isn't a lot of thought that goes into it. But I began at FCI Loretto, was there for a year and a half until I was camp eligible. And how long did it take you to transfer to the camp from a year after you were there? Did you go right after a year and a half? Uh, I immediately. Uh, that that actually worked out very well. I was processed very quickly. I had a very, very um, amenable case manager and counselor. That worked out very well. So you started inside of a low security prison in Laredo. Was that right? Laredo, Pennsylvania. And what was the population level there? Was it more than a thousand people? 1,400 inmates. And how was your initial adjustment inside of a low security prison? Very, very good. And the reason why actually is because when the inmates found out that I was an attorney on the outside, I was very busy right away assisting inmates. And that that happened within the first two weeks. So from, I would say the two week period onward for those, the year and a half, I was literally busy eight to nine hours a day. What kind of practice did you have prior to going to the prison system? A civil litigation and bankruptcy practice, corporate bankruptcy, representing trustees in bankruptcy and and civil, uh, both state and federal litigation. I was a member of the federal trial bar in the Northern District of Illinois for many years. And what was the learning curve to transition from civil litigation and corporate governance to uh, per- prosecuting uh, habeas corpus petitions, post-conviction litigation in prison? It was an adjustment, but surprisingly not significant or as significant as one might expect because the general guidelines for what litigators learn to become a civil litigator apply in the federal context and in the criminal context. So the transition was more or less just studying the federal criminal statutes And that came fairly quickly because, again, I was so busy right off the bat that I was immersed in these statutes from the first few weeks. And uh, basically, many uh, what what one learns when they do this kind of work is that much of the work, particularly as a jailhouse lawyer, and that's what we're called when we're doing the work within the prison, is done with a number of forms and you're using these forms repeatedly. So it's something that became very comfortable for me. And you're talking about forms primarily 2255s and Bivens actions and that kind of thing, or is there something else? And 2241s, yes. So why don't you help our audience understand the difference between a 2255 and a 2241? Generally speaking, a 2255 uh, habeas petition is used when one is um, contesting the validity of their sentence or conviction, the underlying case, if you will. On the other hand, or by contrast, a 2241 habeas petition is typically pursued by an inmate who has 
complaints about prison conditions. The most common, typically being in my experience, lack of me appropriate medical care. That was probably the, the single most common issue that I was dealing with in the 2241 context. Although now, as I've been filing of late, uh, in, in, in combination with compassionate release motions, which we could discuss in a minute, the 2241 petition also applies to this COVID issue at present. Why don't you help our audience understand or differentiate between a 2255 petition and a direct appeal? A direct appeal is... Uh, and ask them if they will allow you to be an authorized user on those accounts. They do not have to even give you the credit card. So there's very little risk to them. The next thing that I did to increase my credit score that you can do is you need to get some of that bad credit off of your credit report. You gotta start cleaning up your credit report. So one of the things that I learned is that you could get errors or omissions or things like that on your credit report off of it. Because what I learned was that the burden of proof was on the person that reported it. So in other words, if I had a charge off with AT&T for a cell phone that I didn't pay, the burden of proof was be on AT&T to prove that it was me and to prove that I still owed the debt. And if they did not verify it, it would have to be removed off of my credit report. Well, you can do the same thing. You, once you have the copy of your credit report, as I've already told you to do, when you have all of the accounts, it's very simple to just go through them and find any inaccuracies, any errors, anything that you could dispute to get that off of your credit report. You need to find any inaccuracies, any errors, or any misrepresentations. Or if it's something that you see on your credit report that you just don't recognize or you don't recall, you can also get that removed. So you can start getting bad credit deleted off of your credit report by starting to file some of those disputes and by locking up your credit. The next thing you can also get off of your credit is inquiries. Many times when we apply for things, people will pull our credit and they will pull it many, many times with different lenders. You may go to apply for a car, for example, and they may shop your loan through all of these different companies and each of those companies is giving you hard inquiries. You literally can take it into your own hands and start to get those hard inquiries removed from your credit report. I've literally made a video about this and I'm going to put a link in there on how to remove those hard inquiries because it is amazing and it is something that you need to do and this is how you will get even more points. What happens with those hard inquiries is, it's probably costing you about five points for each one where you got declined from. And if you can get those inquiries removed, again, they'll remove from themselves after 25 months, okay, because it has to stay up there for two years. After 25 months, they'll automatically fall off your credit report. But if you want to get those removed sooner, you can go ahead by doing that and following the process that I outlined for you. And again, I made a whole video for you. So you want to start cleaning up that credit, removing 
um, any bad credit and errors, omissions, misrepresentations, things you don't represent, things that you don't recall. And then last but not least, disputing and removing all of those hard inquiries and getting that credit report cleaned up. Okay, and last but not least, like I said, I was going to give you a big secret on how you would never have to worry about personal credit again and do all of what Noel did. So like I said, I have great personal credit right now, but I had terrible personal credit a couple of years ago. I was in a situation where I didn't know anything about personal credit, but more importantly, I didn't know about business credit. One of the things that has changed my personal credit situation forever is the fact that now I have a strong business credit profile for all of my businesses. I'm able to access hundreds of thousands, actually millions for some of my business in business funding using my business credit profile. This doesn't go on my personal credit report. As I use those business credit cards, my score is not going all up and down like it was when I was using my personal credit cards. And now I'm in a situation where I really don't even have to touch my personal credit. My business credit handles everything that I need. Additionally, when it comes to business credit, the limits are so much more higher. With personal credit, oftentimes, if you get a Capital One car, for example, they may only give you $1,000. But with a Capital One business credit card, they'll start you off with $5,000, where they would have probably just started you off with 1000 with the personal one. So again, the limits, the amounts, everything are so much higher. It's a different world, and you really want to step into the world of business credit. First, follow the steps that I said and fix that personal credit, but please take a look and learn about business credit. I've made a ton of videos teaching you all about this absolutely free. Let's get on that bandwagon. So there you have it. You now know how to increase your credit score by 200 points. I've given you all of the steps, all of the different things that I've done and told you exactly how to do it. Make sure you click that like button. Make sure you subscribe to my channel. Please click that little notification bell so you do not miss any of this content that I am bringing to you every single weekday, absolutely free. I wanna make sure that you have all of the tools, all of the resources, and all of the knowledge that you need to be successful. This is Noel, to your success. And so from there, um, that's when I realized, like, we closed it out. I got that behind me. And then I started figuring out, um, you know, me, I worked in banks. So, like, knowing all the bank procedures, but I know I can't go back if this holds above me. You know, I couldn't do it while I was fighting the case. Mm -hmm. So at that point, that's when really I started really learning and digging into credit because I had to figure out, like, yo, I have to now have my own blue, my financial backing because there's nowhere else for me to get, you know, I can't go to work kind of money. I want to make, I can't go to work. So I need some kind of fund, some kind of trust fund behind me. And I started digging into credit, really getting heavy into that. Um, 
and then leveraging everything I did working at the banks and ended up actually even going back to a bank, getting back in and and kind of helping people. And then that's when the credit stuff started because I couldn't work a job because I was used to making money already. That's crazy, man. Cause, I mean, I read your story. It was like you've always been an entrepreneur. And so to even have the 60000 to beat that, that I mean, that's pretty remarkable. Um, so... Was no, there I had to make payments. <laughs> I gonna, I'm not going to front. I mean, no, I had that. to make I had to make payments uh, to get it done. Yeah, I mean, but, even but, that. But yeah, I mean, that's one of those things where it's like sometimes everything happens for a reason. Mm-hmm. Well, I, not even sometimes. Everything always happens for a reason, right? And it's like, um, like you said, between the ages of 18 and 25, especially for anybody, but especially young men, especially black men, mm-hmm. it's very tempting. You have a lot of temptations. You have music. You have just the culture, society, and a lot of times, you know, we want to get to the finish line a lot quicker than we should with our parents, what our grandparents would advise us. And, you know, a hard head makes a soft ass. That's, yeah. that's just you know, I, I, was, I, I was actually thinking, like, <laughs> your life is fast, I'm choosing to move quicker. Yeah. And then on the other part, it was like, we always talk about this line, Charlie. We like, yo, change is cool to cop, but more important is lawyer fees. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, this like well, you gotta prime yeah, example. Shout out to Hove. Yeah. But so, but the the shining light in that for me is that you you know saying that you was in the financial space and me being in the financial space. I know anything on your record like that, it prohibits you from a lot. like ever really working in the financial space. So it's mm-hmm. like so now you forced to kind of figure it out. You still have a financial space mind, but. Yeah. If that didn't happen, you probably would have just been a regular corporate worker, maybe. But now you have to like kind of force yourself and to be like an entrepreneur on the credit side and learn credit, and then that blossomed into yeah. where you are now. So learning what happened was is that I thought I said, listen, my goal wasn't even getting credit. I started learn. I learned credit when I was eighteen. Um, my broker, my real estate broker, had a credit repair company. I did all the underwriting. But my goal when I started messing with credit, I go, okay, I need to get mine together, right? So I start focusing on my credit, figuring it out. And when everything happened, I never, like literally the date was January 4th. Um, it was January 4th, 2015, um, when the case closed and was done. January 20th, I started my credit repair company. Between that time, I was figuring out what am I going to do? Like, what am I going to do? I started messing with my credit. And then I said, well, I'm going to help other people. And I remember putting it out there like, yo, I'm going to help other people with their credit. Right. I'm leveraging mine. I figured it out. See, people need it. I remember I I made 11,000 first month. Boom. I go, okay, I got something. Start slowing down. And I remember like leveraging, like starting to build my credit up and figuring out what's the benefits because I knew it was more, it had to be more than get a, buy a house, buy a car and get a credit card just for emergency purposes. I'm like, nah, it's more to this. This has to be worth more than just this, what it is on the simple, on the surface. That's where it started to like flourish. And I started digging deep into like, yo, How do I really go and get money? If I want to get credit card and I want to get funded and fund my own business, where do I, how do I get the money? 
So, so in 2015, right, you said January, mm -hmm. what type of things are you doing to leverage your credit at this point or in the beginning? Now, at the beginning, I was trying to make money. Okay. So that was, that was the business. That was the business that I had, um, helping people, showing them how to make money. So when it came from, like, I remember working in the banks, helping, helping people with it and they still couldn't get approved. Hmm. So then at that point I'm going, I'm looking now. And that's when I start really publicly helping people versus like, you know, when I was working before, when I'm working in the bank, going through all my trials, um, I could help people, but it was quiet. It wasn't like a marketed company. So now it's out publicly and I'm working it and it started bringing in. So now I'm going, okay, this is my business. I'm making money off of it. I have good credit now. Okay. What's the benefits and perks of it? Gotcha. Yeah. That's, and then at that point, that's when I start. A category D felony would include crimes such as involuntary manslaughter, uh, forgery, uh, bad check or failure to pay a marker. And a category D felony includes a term of imprisonment of up to four years. With a category D felony, you're able to seek to have your record sealed 12 years after the completion of your sentence. Each one of those is a victim. I was like, are you, they're all owned by Countrywide. They're like, no, that's not how it works. Well, then they turned around and they gave me an enhancement for having, for stealing more than a mil, or for whatever, you, uh, for stealing more than a million dollars from one financial institution. And I was like, who's that? And they said, Countrywide. And I went, well, well this doesn't even make sense. Like, Countrywide... You, you said, like, I didn't steal more than a million dollars from any one of those four countries. Right? They said, yeah, but if you add them together, it's more than a million dollars. I said, but you said they were four individual victims. And then they said, no, no, or they're four corporate corporation victims. So four victims, they said, yeah, but for the purposes of this enhancement, we can add them together because they're all owned by Countrywide Bank. I mean, like, that's double jeopardy. You're hitting me for the same thing over and over again and just calling it something else. So the point is, is I got hit for that. I probably did an extra couple of years for that. Uh, and that's what they're going to do to Lugo. They're going to stack the charges and he's going to say, I'll plead guilty, but he's going to cooperate against all of his friends and family. And he's gonna say, you know, uh, Jimmy helped me and Tommy helped me and Bob helped me and so-and-so helped me and he did this and he did that. And he's gonna put it together for him. And I'll bet you he still gets between five and 10 years. He's still gonna get between five and 10 years. Even with all that, if he just says, you know what, forget it. I'm just gonna cooperate. I mean, I'm, I'm not gonna cooperate. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna take my lumps uh, you know, just, just, uh, I'll plead guilty and, uh, I'll just take the charge. He's going to get 20 years. He's going to get 20 years because he was, he was on supervision when this, or on probation when this happened. 
He'd just been released from prison. He's already got a criminal history of fraud. I mean, and this is the other thing is you get an enhancement for fraud against the United States. He's going to probably get an extra two-point enhancement for fraud against the United States. I mean, every time, every one of these points incrementally gets larger and larger. So your first, you know, once you're in, once you're up to like 10, so let's say the next point, let's say 10 and you're going to jail for a year. Well, the next enhancement is, let's say it's, Let's say it's six months. So you're going to, we're going to add, you're, you're currently, you're currently getting 120 months, but you also have this enhancement. Well, that enhancement adds another six months. Now it's 126 months. Oh yeah. And we're also going to give you this other enhancement. Well, the next enhancement, it's not six months. Every new enhancement adds more months. So the next enhancement is eight more months. So now you're doing, um, you're doing 134 months. Oh, and then, and then we've got these other two enhancements. Well, that's not eight. Now it's, now it's 11 plus, you know, so that's the next one's 11. And then the next one on top of that is going to be, you know, 14. So you're like, it just, next thing you know, every enhancement ends up, by the time they were done hitting me with enhancements, every enhancement, Every enhancement for me, okay, was like 40 months, 43 months, 48 months, 52 months. I mean, they smashed me. It was, it was, it was just detrimental. Every time somebody was like, oh, well, also he did this and that's another enhancement. That's a one point. And some of these enhancements are two, three, four points. My point is this, he's going to do some time. He's not getting out. He's not going to get out on, on, uh, he's not going to get out on his own recognizance. He's certainly not going to get out on bond. He doesn't have any of his own money. I can't imagine that he could prove if he had any of his own money, he, he wouldn't be ripping off the federal government. So most likely he's going to sit in prison. He's going to cooperate as best as possible. And, and he's going to get sentenced and he's going to end up going back to Coleman. And he's going to probably go back to B4. No, I'm just joking. I don't know. Where. He'll probably go back to Coleman, though. He'll probably go back to Coleman Low. He'll see all of his old buddies. He'll walk in. They'll be like, I can't tell you how many times I saw guys leave. Listen, I did 12 and a half years. I watched guys get out of prison, get a new charge, come back to prison, serve their time for that new charge, get out of prison again, get another charge and come back to prison. That's how long I was there. So he's going to see a bunch of the same guys and they're going to walk in. He's going to walk in. I've seen these guys, they walk in and you look up at them and you go like that. And they're like, they just shake their head and they go, and you go, 
what happened, man? And they're like, man, bro, you can't believe this, man. I I got jammed up because of this or that or this or, you know, I was doing this and I was doing that. And While in certain counties in northern Nevada, prostitution is legal, many people are surprised to find out that here in Reno and Lake Tahoe in Washoe County, prostitution is illegal. It's a violation of NRS 201.354. The legal definition of prostitution is engaging or agreeing to engage in any sexual acts for money and or any other compensation. Meaning it doesn't even have to be money. It could be for trade or for drugs or other items of value. You don't even have to go through with the sexual act and they can still charge you for the allegation of solicitation or prostitution. That's critical to know because so many times in a lot of situations you may be conversing with someone you think that you're hitting it off with and it turns out that in fact they are now going to be charging you with solicitation because you came into some kind of agreement unknowingly just joking around. Instagram, private jets, fast cars, and throwing money into the air like confetti were only a few of the posts real estate mogul and social media influencer Hush Puppy was known for making. Little did he know, he was leaving a digital trail for all us here at the FBI, and that flaunting led us to the truth, a massive money laundering scam. In total, he had stolen $1.6 billion in United Arab Emirates Durham. It's a crime that will leave you speechless. I know I was. Here's the scoop on just how he did it, what he was spending all that money on, and how he was finally caught. Sometimes, things can get pretty slow here at the Federal Bureau of Investigation. I know growing up, I thought it would be like I saw in the movies, you know, arresting the criminal masterminds of the world and bringing them to justice. Look, here's the truth about the job. Not all cases have stories worthy of worldwide news coverage. Spoiler alert, many times this line of work is a 9 to 5 like any other, with a lot of paperwork. But sometimes there's a case that's so out of this world that we feel we've earned our $66,000 per year salary. Hush Puppy was one such case. Here's a bit of backstory on Hush Puppy, in case you didn't know. I know I didn't, but frankly, I'm not on Instagram all that much. His real name, Ramon Abbas. He is a social media influencer and a self-proclaimed real estate mogul from Nigeria. For what it's worth, he definitely knows how to play the social media game. Mr. Abbas has over 2.5 million followers, and at 37 years old, he has made millions of dollars. Dollars he now very publicly spends, and posts all sorts of lavish lifestyle pictures to the internet. And when I say lavish, I definitely mean it. 
common posts for Mr. Hushpuppy shows him standing in front of what we can only assume are private jets, going on huge shopping sprees where he is seen splurging on clothes from Gucci, Versace, and Vendi, where shirts can cost $1,000 or more. Oh, and of course, tons of photos of him in front of a multitude of super fast and super expensive cars. Some of his favorite driving machines are a $300,000 Rolls-Royce or his $200,000 Ferrari. But he also lived in an incredibly expensive and exclusive Palazzo Versace in Dubai. He even has videos online of him taking off from a helicopter right from his home on the waterfront. Basically, this man did everything he could to let people know he was rich. Very, very rich. And Hush Puppy soon learned that his talent for curating a social media following, I mean, who wouldn't want to live vicariously through this man's millionaire lifestyle, would give us here at the FBI everything we could ever need to secure his arrest. See, here's the thing about Hush Puppy. He made all of his money illegally by a scheme called money laundering. The idea behind money laundering is simple. Basically, someone will conceal the real source of their money. In Hush Puppy's case, he had stolen millions from banks, private investors, and companies by tricking them into putting money into an account that they were then using for their own purchases. When our team here at the FBI got a chance to look at the evidence we'd collected after his arrest, we found phone and email records that contained over 100,000 fraud files and over 2 million addresses that looked to be potential victims. The companies that Hush Puppy targeted spanned over two continents. It was a worldwide crime. He had stolen $923,000 when a paralegal at a New York law firm wired money into an account that belonged to Mr. Abbas. This paralegal had received instructions to wire the money into a certain bank account that Abbas and his team tricked them into using, and that $923,000 was meant to go to a client's real estate refinancing. It instead went to anything Mr. Abbas wanted. But that's just one instance of Abbas's manipulation. He stole $14.7 million from a foreign financial institution, having them send money into a Romanian bank account. Other evidence shows that he also used tricked victims into putting money into United States bank accounts as well. Arguably, his biggest potential scam was when he tried to steal $124 million from an English Premier League soccer club. Luckily, all we know about this attempted scam is just that. It was an attempt. To be honest, this kind of criminal activity makes us FBI agents sick to our stomachs. Last year alone, upwards of $1.7 billion were stolen by means of cyber fraud. It's an ongoing problem that just doesn't seem to go away. Like a scar of guilt that won't fade with time. I'm Las Vegas criminal defense attorney Michael Becker. 
There is no Nevada law that prohibits the concealed carry or open carry of firearms in casinos. Even if the casino puts up a sign that says, no guns allowed, those signs carry no legal weight. However, casinos are private institutions and can make their own ground rules. Therefore, casino security has every right to order gun carriers to leave the property. And if gun carriers refuse to leave or stay away when asked, they could be charged with trespass. As a misdemeanor, trespass carries up to six months in jail and or up to $1,000 in fines. Plus, the casino could permanently ban the person from ever coming back. Even if a casino permits guns on its premises, it is always a Category C felony in Nevada to conceal carry without a current and valid CCW permit from Nevada or a reciprocal state. The penalties include one to five years in prison and possibly up to $10,000 in fines. But CCW permit holders who simply forget to bring their permit with them face just a $25 civil fine. A lot of innocent people get accused of firearm crimes in Nevada. If you're facing criminal charges, call my legal team at 702-DEFENSE. The experienced criminal defense attorneys at the Las Vegas Defense Group have helped thousands of people get their charges reduced or dismissed while saving their gun rights. Nobody wants to find out that they have an outstanding warrant. And we get a lot of calls from people that have uh, gone to renew their license to the DMV, for example, and found out that they had a warrant. Uh, maybe they were arrested. Maybe they were just told about it. Uh, sometimes people get pulled over and an officer may write them a citation and not actually arrest them on the warrant, but inform them that they have a warrant. But whatever the facts and circumstances may be, it's never fun to find out that you have a warrant for your arrest. Uh, depending on what type of warrant it is, we may be able to go into court for you and have the court quash the warrant. Uh, quashing the warrant basically means uh, when you appear, either personally or through counsel, the court once again has jurisdiction over you. They no longer have to utilize the warrant to arrest you and bring you before the court. When you voluntary, voluntarily appear before the court, there's a pretty good chance that the court will quash the warrant, allow you to remain out of custody until you resolve your legal matter. Uh, a warrant can lie for uh, a felony charge, a misdemeanor charge, or even a traffic ticket. And it's very important to clear up your warrants because obviously uh, nobody wants to go to jail, especially unexpectedly. So um, if you have a warrant, um, call 702-DEFENSE. Uh, when, I, when, I, when I go out of town, I actually go to Peachy. Yeah, I go in at 750 a day. Yes. 
And he said, yo, he'll just go down there, he pay the 750, yeah. leave, they go pick it That's up. That's what I was doing before I got my lot. And what's right. crazy, I was paying all this money to Peach this whole time, not knowing that the lot that I was soon to have was right next to it. Right I next had, door. Um, here's the here's the clutch, hutch clutch play. So Peachy, they use a third party called Wait, uh, Wait, W A W A Y, and I was paying half the price that Peachy charges on Way. If on Way, yo, they be having joints for two dollars. That's what bro. I was paying two dollars because this was before I knew about the airport drop. I'm like, I'm not gonna be paying thirty six dollars for these parking tickets no more. Yeah. I'm gonna drop the car off at the airport mm-hmm. parking lot. Peachy, pay two dollars, and then charge the guests for the for the two dollars. You know <laughs> and then, so the beautiful thing is, they'll pick the car up from Peachy, go about their way to travel. When they drop the car off at Peachy, they can take the Peachy shuttle back to the airport. Mm, Smooth process. Perfect. Perfect. Smooth process. I and love if I have to pick it. up, if I have to pick up the car, or one of my team members have to pick up the car, right? They'll take the train. This Atlantic Station, there's a train that goes straight to the airport. So they don't have to worry about driving, getting caught in traffic. Yeah. It was a smooth ride to the airport. Pick the car up and move on from there. So what's, so, uh, and it's so crazy because you've been doing this for. It's only two years. Two years. We're going crazy. And you're just now, you just now put out your course. And yeah, that's a fact. Yeah. You know, I don't know how many courses you sold, ever. <laughs> like the like the first release, yeah. right? Yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. Knocking on my door for this. Yeah, because people been asking you for yes. for two years. Yes. Yo, put me on. Yes, I've been sharing this. Yeah, and I and I for saw free. Right, right, right. But you know, my my boys, they they was like, bro, drop the course, package right. this material, and drop in, in a course form. So I ain't gonna lie, him five hundred Marcus. He, he was on my neck. Mm. Neo, on my neck about dropping a course. Yeah. Calling me, bro, you got to drop a course. You know how he's talking? Right. You got to drop the course or we're going to do it. I'm like, oh, 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 chill out, chill out, chill out, chill out. What you mean you're going to drop the tour? All right, all right, I'll, I'll drop it next week. Right, right. So I posted my Instagram, like, yo, everybody, I'm dropping this course. Here's the date. I didn't even build it out yet. I know setting a date is gonna force me to do it. Mm. Cause I'm so used to giving out the game for free, enjoying the, the responses, that I didn't feel right charging for it, yeah. right? But that, I got a bar with that where, if I don't charge, you know how me ought to be talking yeah. to. If I don't charge, they're not gonna put it into action, they're not yeah. gonna respect it. You already know that, how that sure. works too. So I said, cool, I'm gonna charge. You see, I'm gonna test out the price. I charged $12.99. As soon as I put on my Instagram stories, I'm launching the course. I'm doing pre-sales. Cash at me. I got cash at cash at went crazy. Man, man, look at my cash at right. Where, where my phone at? Cash at right now. Cash I'm gonna, I'm gonna show it you wasn't a phone. link. It wasn't no credit card. And they trust me. Most people are like nah, that's a cash fa- that's a fact. And I believe because you built a and you know for those that know you. No, like you are a very credible person, yeah, very honest. Like I'm it's here. not, we know that like Steve. money ain't your biggest thing. Yeah. You feel me? So when you put out something, they're like, yo, I'm here for it. I rock That's a with fact. it. That's what happened, man. I got instant feedback. I, I didn't know that people were willing to pay for this information, but I had to stop devaluing, devaluing this information. This information, if I had it, 
I would have saved that twenty eight hundred dollars. Yeah. I would have saved all the money I lost in the beginning stages, st- uh, stages to the point where I now just yo here's the course information. If you need to know, I have it all documented here. So Same what's topic. what's what's in the course? Talk to me about the what's whole in the process. Course. How to buy a vehicle. The best way how to not get finessed by the salespeople. <laughs> Anytime somebody goes to the dealership, you the think you're gonna be there in there for an hour? How long is most people be in the dealership for? Forever. Four hours, five hours, six hours. And they beat your brain until until you feel like you would just wanna die. Mm. So that's when they get you in the finance room and they have you signing all these Oh, you need warranty? It's just gonna be an extra twenty dollars on your monthly payment. <laughs> you sign here. <laughs> Man, give me the keys, man. Get them out here. It prevents that in that session. I teach how to uh, figure out what business model you want. Do you want to be an owner in this business, meaning you cash out a car or finance a car under your name? Or do you want to be a broker where you're a middleman between the cars? Meaning you don't have to get the car yourself. David, his Range Rover, somebody wants a Range Rover. I'm in the middle of saying, yo, you need a Range Rover? David got it for you. He charges $200 a day. You can pay him directly and run me my $50 so then you know about that booking. Mm. That's a broker. You're the middleman. Yo, let me ask you this. Because a guy sent me a DM. Um, hold on. Um, a, a guy sent me a, a – I, I think I made a post about it. And um, a guy, uh, he sent me a DM about um, his car. On this episode of The Lawyer You Know, we talk about how to go from being a lawyer to a judge. Most people know that for some time you have to be a lawyer before you can actually become a judge. And I bring my dad on to explain the process of how a lawyer becomes a judge He served on judicial nominating commissions in the past. It's a group who does a lot of work in nominating lawyers and evaluating lawyers that potentially could become judges. We've done some podcasts and videos in the past that we'll link below on Supreme Court justice nominees, on the process of becoming a Supreme Court justice. And there are a ton of different judges and judicial positions that come available. So what I want to start out talking about, Dad, is what is the basic requirements for a lawyer to become a judge or even be considered for a judgeship? Well, there are different requirements for different levels of court. We've got four levels of court in Florida. We have the Supreme Court, we have District Courts of Appeal, we have Circuit Courts, we have County Courts. For the Supreme Court, the District Courts of Appeals, it's 10 years as a lawyer, For county courts and circuit courts, it's five years of a lawyer. Uh, Of course, they have to be members of the Florida Bar. And they have to live, right, and they have to live within the area that they're applying for a judgeship. So if it's a Pinellas County judge, they have to live in Pinellas County. If it's a Pinellas County position that's open, a judgeship that's open. Okay, so you have to be a lawyer for at least five years for those lower level state courts. And you have to be a lawyer for at least 10 years for the upper level ones. Correct. Okay, anything else? Or is it just how long you've been a lawyer, basically? Just how long you've been a lawyer. To be eligible. Right. Now, there are are exceptions. If you're in one of those small counties in North Florida where you only have 40,000 people in the county, then you can be just a lawyer 
and be nominated. So you don't have to have any experience. Right. And in fact, years ago, you didn't even have to be a lawyer to be a judge because those counties were so small, sometimes they didn't have a lawyer that lived in the whole county. Okay. But now we're large enough, and so we can have this requirement. Okay, so but now you have to be a lawyer. Have to be a lawyer. And in what is the cutoff? Forty thousand people in your county. Right. So if you have more than forty thousand people in your county, you still have to have that five or ten year requirement. Correct. Okay. Do you have to be a lower court judge, like a county court judge or circuit court judge, before you can become an appellate court judge or a supreme court judge? There is no requirement for any. There's no on-the-job training requirement or anything like that for you to apply to be a judge. Okay, so we've gotten the basic requirements out, the years of experience in being a lawyer. Talk about the process and the different ways that lawyers can become judges because you don't just apply and become a judge, you have to go through different processes. Explain what those are like. There's two ways in Florida to become a judge. One is you're appointed by the governor or two, you're elected by the people. And what we're talking about right now are state court judges. These are strictly state court judges. Okay, so that's important. We're going to differentiate and talk about federal court later, but right now everything we're talking about is state court judges. So there's two ways, appointed by the governor or voted on by the actual county that you're elected in. Right. Okay. The Supreme Court uh, justices and appellate court justices are always, those are always appointed by the governor. It's the circuit court, which are, we call the trial courts, and the county court. Those are the ones that you can win by election. So the county court and circuit courts that you call the trial court, those are the ones that affect your lives. Those are the ones making the decisions in your cases for the majority of the time. They're the ones in criminal court and civil court that if you file a lawsuit or if you get arrested, your case is going to come before one of those judges that is usually elected by the local county that they're going to represent. So you have a voice, you have an opportunity to vote for local judges, and again, shameless plug, but also for extra explanation, we explain the entire voting process for judges and go through the local judges that get voted on in our county on this podcast that we're gonna link in the comments below Comment if you have any specific questions about how the local elections are handled and what you should look for in judges, how you should vote, and if you should vote at all. So make sure you either comment below, go listen to our podcast, you can get more info on that because you actually have a chance to have a voice for the judges that are going to affect your lives. So there are also some situations where judges are appointed to those local positions, whether it's a county court judge or circuit court judge, why does that happen? And talk a little bit about how long these judges are in office. Well, judges are not in office, I guess, but on the bench. Well, they're elected for six years, and they have to run again every six years. And However, is that across the board? Across County, the board. Circuit, appellate, Supreme Court? Correct. All six years. Okay. All six years. The difference is in the appellate court, the Supreme Court, and the district courts of appeal, those are what's called merit retention votes. So people only vote on right. those judges to say, Hector has access to that account. You're going to get yourself in a mess. We run into it all the time, helping people work through these things. So doing all of that, then you work your debt snowball and work your way 
back through the inactive accounts and you clear them off by in writing, settle it, in writing, settle it, in writing, settle it, in writing, settle it, and then you're clear. And most of the time, 25 cents on the dollar, 10 cents on the dollar of what they say you owe is going to sound more like about what you originally owed or a little bit less, depending on who you're dealing with, what kind of debt it was, and all that kind of thing. But they'll settle with you if you offer them cash now. I will send you money this instant on this debit card, this prepaid debit card off to the side, or this checking account off to the side, or I'll send you a a cashier's check overnight and pay the FedEx charges, but do not let them in your account. You'll get messed up and messed over. Hey guys, thanks for watching. If you enjoyed this video, click the subscribe button to get the latest content and check out these other great clips from the show. Yeah, that was torture, but it built something in me that I hadn't had before then. Uh, it gave me a drive. It, it gave me a, a, a commitment that that I had never discovered in myself as a as a twenty one year old. And and let me just say how it was so easy for me to get caught up in the drug selling when I came home in 1998. Because that's what the culture was doing. When I came home in 1998, Master P had just dropped an a, 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 a album called Ghetto Dope. Ghetto Dope. Man, 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 crack like this. And it taught you how to cook crack from step one to step 10. So when I came home after being gone from 91 to 98 and I come back and I look into the black community, everybody's selling dope. The dope man image is what the girls want, is what the preachers like. Everybody like the dope man image. So everybody's selling dope. They rapping about it. So man, I just get in line with the culture. I get in line with the culture because the culture almost made it like it it was logical to sell dope over working because the rewards were so great, right? So many black children of our culture followed that mon that bullshit, nigga hustling, selling dope, me 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 crack like this. So we went from that to trapping to now drilling and killing. So the culture reshaped me. After all the good that TYC had done, my culture reshaped me in the pimping and the drug dealing. I went back to robbing, nigga snatching purses, all that shit, nigga, because that's what the culture was doing. A category E felony in Nevada would include possession of narcotics, a second time charge for peeping, solicitation of a minor for prostitution, or recruitment into a criminal gang. Most category E felonies would result initially in a sentence of probation, but uh, they could also result in a prison sentence of up to four years in the state prison. For record seal on a category E felony, you are eligible to seek a record seal seven years after completion of your sentence.
watching FJTN, the Federal Judicial Television Network. Live from Washington, D.C., the Federal Judicial Center and the U.S. Sentencing Commission present Sentencing and Guidelines, Basic Application. Your moderator for today's program, Nancy Filson. Hello, as you just heard, I'm Nancy Filsuf, and I'm a senior education specialist for the Federal Judicial Center. Welcome to this afternoon's broadcast on sentencing and guidelines, basic application. Uh, this is actually a third in the series of broadcasts on sentencing and guidelines that has been presented by the Federal Judicial Center in partnership with the United States Sentencing Commission. Let me tell you a little bit about this broadcast. We're going to be um, broadcasting for approximately two hours, and at that midpoint, we'll probably have a five-minute break. Now, let me tell you more about the broadcast. What, we've, what we're going to do is a major portion of the broadcast, we are going to be showing a videotape of a training program that the United States Sentencing Commission uh, presented in Clearwater, Florida, not too long ago on basic applications. So what we have done is we have divided this tape into four segments. And in between the segments, we have experts from the Sentencing Commission that we will introduce to you in a few minutes. And they will provide commentary on the segments and also they will answer your questions that you will be faxing in um, during the pro program broadcast. I'll give you the fax number in just a few minutes. Also, I want to show you that we have some information that you can find about the broadcast on the Federal Judicial Center DCN website. And there's a lot of very good information about the Sentencing Commission in here. So I really urge you to get this information if you haven't already done so. Also in this packet, you will notice that we have provided for your convenience a fax form that you can use when you are faxing in your questions to us. Now before I forget, let me give you the fax number. It's 1-800-488-0397. Also, this program has been approved for Continuing Legal Education Credit, or CLE. And you can find out how to apply for this credit also by going to the Federal Judicial Center DCN website. I believe I'm finished with my announcements. What I'd like to do is to introduce to you my colleagues from the Sentencing Commission. First of all, we have Rusty Burrows, who is the principal advisor in the commission. And we also have Rachel Pierce, 
who is an education and sentencing practice specialist. And both are from the Office of the Education and Sentencing Practice. Well, Rusty and um, Rachel, welcome to the program. I'm so glad you're here today. Thank you so much, Nancy. And I know that you do have some comments that you want to provide to us before we start the first segment. So, Rachel, why don't you start first? Thank you, Nancy. Good afternoon. On behalf of the Sentencing Commission, I'd like to welcome you to Sentencing and Guidelines Basic Application. Today, on the pre-recorded videotape, you will be seeing instruction from Andy Purdy in the Office of General Counsel, Frank Larry in the Office of Education and Sentencing Practice, and Rusty Burris. As, as Nancy mentioned earlier, this videotape was originally taped at the 8th Annual National Seminar on Sentencing Guidelines, which occurred in Clearwater, Florida in 1999. Rusty, would you like to tell us a little bit more about how the broadcast is going to go today? be glad to. Uh, as you know from the title of our program today, the focus is on basic guidelines application. And we're going to do that by breaking it down into four segments. In the first segment, we're going to look at uh, some of the general application principles. We'll look at the Chapter 2 guidelines for offense, offenses. We'll also look at the Chapter 3 adjustments. In our second segment, we'll look at criminal history determinations and also how to use the sentencing table in coming up with an appropriate guideline range. In the third segment, we'll look at relevant conduct. And then in the fourth segment, we'll look at multiple counts with just a brief uh, look at departures. Now, after segments one and three, uh, Rachel, you and I will be coming back to just make a few comments. Uh, after segments two and four, uh, we'll be coming back to take the uh, questions that the uh, viewers will be asking us. Uh, and in terms of the be very stigmatizing boy is definitely ha happy with this decision because he took the social media and made a statement immediately when this happened or you know as soon as it, it made news now in his post on social media rag boy had this to say man and it just seemed like man he was really really excited about the judgment but this is what he said verbatim he said this has been a very lengthy and tedious process I'm grateful for the outcome, and I'm thankful it's all behind me. I'm excited to get back into the studio and continue creating music for my fans. I wish the best for all parties on current and future endeavors. It's Rack Boys, SZN, Are You Dumb? And then I don't know what emoji that is, but it looks like a circle. And then hashtag Rack Boys, hashtag Jersey. So, man... It looks like, man, things are looking up for Rack Boy. And he was even posted, he even reposted some of the people who took the social media to make memes about the situation like this. He reposted this, man, or somebody, they posted the, the they took his head and put it on Chris Tucker's face from the uh, Rush Hour movie. And it basically says this, it said, Rack Boy Cam all summer after winning that 1.7 million laughing emojis. Nothing but, you know what, you know what, you know what, for him now, man. And I had to block out those other things because, you know, they're not good for this platform. 
Now, Rack Boy thought it was funny, obviously, because he posted this. He said, chill, y'all cooking on the internet. And it was more memes that people were posting, but, man, it goes to show that, you know, he was taking this real well. Of course, because he won, but, man, it seems like PMB rocking them might be punching this punching the air right now, man. They thinking about that money that they just lost. Now, in the news article, it doesn't say what type of, you know, judgment it was. It doesn't say where, where they sued in civil court. I'm sure it was, man, because, I mean, I don't know, man. When it comes to copyrights, I'm not really sure. But it just seems like, man, for them, for all the news publications and, you know, hip-hop sites to pick this up, it must have been a clear-cut deal, and this is official, man. So it looks like Rack Boy got a little bit of change to invest into his music career, and PMB rocking them, they're going to lose on the front end and a little bit of the publishing and all that on the back end. But I don't think this is going to hurt their career in any type of way, man. I mean, YF and Lucci, his hands are full right now. He's got his thing that he's dealing with, and PMB rock. It's still just making sure that he's cranking out hits. I know he just did a joint pretty much with everybody from OTF, including a song with uh, King Von that, that he did before, that they did together before he passed away. So it seems like he's back in that mode to be working on music. So all in all, maybe this is a win for everybody. I don't know. I'm just trying to keep it positive, I guess. But what do you guys think, man? Do you think that taking this hit to your pocket for YFN Lucci and PNB Rock specifically is one of the worst things that can happen in the music business? I'll tell you this, man. After looking at a whole bunch of stories, this is a common occurrence. This happens all the time. People pay money to get things right. The other person gets a little piece of the song. Things move on. So, I mean, this might not be the worst thing in the world. But is this just another negative notch on Wyatt and Lucci's belt with everything that he's got going on right now? Now, with that, this being your boy, Big Man, please hit that like button. Please hit that subscribe button. And make sure you hit that notification bell so that way you get a notification every time I drop this hot content. And we out of here. Peace. That's the Apprendi versus New Jersey decision by the U.S. Supreme Court last year. Uh, there, the U.S. Supreme Court talked about what is required in order to have an enhanced maximum statutory penalty. Because our video presentation today, however, is focusing on basic guidelines application, we will not be getting into the determination of statutory penalties or looking at recent case law developments. But for those of you that are interested in Apprendi, and I'm sure that virtually everyone is, uh, the FJTN did an excellent broadcast just last month that looked at Apprendi. Uh, they did a great job. It had an expert panel that was involved in that uh, to include one of our sentencing commissioners, Judge Joe Kendall from the Northern District of Texas. Uh, so we certainly commend you uh, to, to watching that video. We, we think it's, it's, it's an excellent one. Uh, it will be rebroadcast on a couple of occasions upcoming uh, on the FJTN network. Uh, the first will be on uh, February the 14th. Uh, I assume that that's probably like some kind of FJTN Valentine's Day special. And then it will be shown again on March the 14th. Uh, on each of those dates, it'll be shown at both uh, noon and then again at one o'clock.
Thank you, Rusty. We're going to move on to our final segment in just a moment. But before we do that, Rusty, um, I just wanted to ask you, what do you think is one of the most important principles to remember when we're applying relevant conduct? Well, I think the main thing, and, and you probably gathered it from the uh, video presentation, uh, was that uh, relevant conduct it has to be done on an individualized determination uh, for each and every defendant that is uh, being sentenced and in the, in the for which the guidelines are being applied. You have to go through this analysis for each and every one. Uh, and that's true even if you have multiple defendants convicted of just the same count of conviction because that relevant conduct may be different for each of those defendants. And you don't know that until you have gone through that analysis and that application. Uh, now, I know that sometimes, uh, if you've done it long enough, uh, it starts seeming maybe a little bit intuitive as, as to the analysis. Uh, but I think uh, always uh, a person applying the guidelines would do well to go back to the analysis and be able to articulate where in the analysis they found the relevant conduct to apply or not to apply. Uh, because if an issue is challenged, you have to be able to go back and to justify why you did or did not include something as part of your relevant conduct. Absolutely, very good point. Okay, it's time to move on to our fourth and final segment of the videotape. It's going to focus on multiple count application and we're also going to give you a brief discussion of departures. Remember, if you have any questions, please fax them into us now. Once again, our fax number is 1-800-488-0397. Let's go back to the videotape. Of course, as you're applying guidelines, you've got to use the sentencing table, and you've got to come down the table to a certain point and across the table to a certain point to come up with your guideline range. And with multiple counts, of course, one of the practical aspects of it is, hey, well, if I got multiple counts, what point do I use going down the table? If I got multiple counts, do I have multiple points? You know, how do I, I got to have one place that I come down so I can go across from that place to go out to find this one range. And the rationale for the multiple count rules. One is to determine the single offense level. By using these rules, you will be able to find that one point coming down the table that connects with that one point going across the table that gives you this one guideline range for your multiple counts of conviction. The commission in the multiple count rules is trying to keep from double counting, from punishing a defendant twice through conduct really has already been punished under one of the counts of conviction. We don't want to double punish. Uh, also, to provide incremental punishment. If someone, say, comes into court convicted of multiple offenses, uh, oftentimes people will get multiple punishments for multiple offenses, but typically it is, a, it is an equal amounts of, of punishment. A guy convicted of five robberies probably doesn't get the, the length of time under nine guideline sentencing, uh, five times the time that the guy who committed the one robbery. Rather, it's more of an incremental increase. And our guidelines work to give incremental increases. Yeah, you'll get more time for five robberies than for one, 
but you're not going to get five times the amount. You're going to get a little bit more for each of the additional what we call harms. And to limit prosecutorial impact. If the guidelines said, oh, every time you get a count of conviction, we're going to add so much more offense levels or so much more time or whatever, prosecutors say, well, in this case, you know, I can charge 20 counts of embezzlement. Uh, in this other case, I'll just charge one count of embezzlement. And boy, we came out with a whole lot different sentence here just based on purely the way I decided to charge this conduct. And the commission has tried to limit that somewhat in these multiple count rules. Now, as the commission said, we know that when you have multiple counts of conviction, you have multiple violations of law. It's, I mean, it's, it's one and the same. You violated the law multiple times with the multiple counts of conviction. But you don't always have... Hey, what's going on? My name is Nate, lawyer slash YouTuber. And today I want to talk about Cardi B again. And we're going to actually just look up her case and look at what she's charged with and see how much time she can actually get because a lot of the cardi b fans i love you guys thank you guys for watching thanks for making comments have been hammering me in the comment section saying that everything i'm showing you guys is fake news so it even got to one point where one fan was like, this is all fake, there's nothing about it. Then I actually said, here's the name, here's the link, go look it up. And they refused to look it up. So, just so we can all be on the same page. And because I've been challenged, it's time to provide that receipt. Let's go into the receipts. For those of you who don't know who Cardi B is and don't know who the people I'm talking about, check out this news clip. It'll get you caught up in a quick hot minute. Rapper Cardi B has been indicted on charges stemming from a melee at a Queen strip club. In April, Cardi B rejected a plea deal that would have included no jail time if she pleaded guilty to third-degree assault. Cardi B is accused of throwing items inside Angel's strip club in Flushing last August, injuring two bartenders. The 26-year-old due back in court next Tuesday. So our first stop is to the comments section. This is love me or let me leave. Uh-oh. And they edited. Now, this person says Cardi B is not facing 10 years. No way you're an attorney. Oh, no. So then I write back. Look it up yourself. Two felonies. See Cardi B's case, right? Defendant's name. Here's the link. Go check it out. Waterfalls come. I see nothing. I can't do anything. It's just like, oh, my God. Stop reporting false info. Can't see anything on the state's website. I put the link works for everyone else. So then we have some back and forth with other people. Now she's saying that she sees it or he or she or whatever's happening. So I started getting a couple of these comments. I started getting comments saying that, you know, there's no way she's getting any time and I'm just missing it i'm it's wrong 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 so i'm like all right let's do this 
let's just look it up ourselves and I'll show you exactly where I'm getting my numbers from. First, so you guys can see, we are going to e-courts. Now, if you're in New York and you're arrested, you can look up the case here. You can look up Harvey Weinstein. You can look up anybody's case here on eCorps. And you go to this place called Web Crimes. Now, I've already pulled it up. Now, I've used Cardi B's name, um, which is her government name. And you can pull up the case right here. Queen Supreme Court. Now, this is a court that handles felonies. So, there it is. And now we look at her arrest information. So this is the summary of her case. Defendant, her birth year tells you, you know, what, what day she was arrested, what date the incident was, you know, all this great stuff. So now we can see what's going on. We can see her attorney, for instance, and her next appearance date, which is March 19th, 2020. So now on this side right here, you see where it says appearances. So now we can actually see when she's been in the court and what happened. So she's been to court all these times, all these times, you know, in front of this judge, that judge, the court reporter. Um, and she's always been in front of the same judge. Now it's on for trial. So she's on for trial. So she was arraigned. I think she was arraigned on a misdemeanor. That she was arraigned on felony. So you, you can see it's all here. And her next trial date. Her trial date is 3-19-2020. So that is her next date. Calendared for next week. Okay. So this is the part... This is the part where I think people are getting confused on, so let's just go into it. It all it is the charges. Here are the charges. Now, the first one, as you can see here, is a violation. This is harassment in the second degree. That's like a parking ticket. It's nothing. You know, nobody serves any jail in time for violations here in New York. It's a laugher, right? So the first two counts of violations. Now. Yeah. Throw them away. They're really worth nothing. Again, violations are like parking tickets. Class A misdemeanor is something interesting. Because a Class A misdemeanor, that means that you could spend up to 364 days in jail. You can't spend a year in jail because if you spend a year, it has to be a felony. And you have to be indicted for that. So, misdemeanors, you can spend up to a year in jail. Cardi's being charged with the misdemeanor, of, a misdemeanor of conspiracy. So, she could spend up to a year in jail, 364 days. Now, is she going to get that for any of these charges? Probably not. It all depends on her criminal history. It's a lot of factors that go into sentencing. But usually I tell you that you for that. No, I got the relationship. I'm going to charge the furniture store. Hey, listen, markup is crazy on this. you probably selling... For ten thousand, you're giving them twenty five hundred dollars worth of furniture, maybe four. Mm. I need a seven hundred and fifty dollar referral fee for every client I send in here. But when I go in, you go in and introduce yourself as listen, make up an I'm an apartment specialist. <laughs> right? I specialize in, in I'm an occupancy specialist, right? I specialize in getting all the apartments in the area fully occupied or uh, occupancy level of ninety five. 
plus percent. Uh, they, they're going to be confused. I don't know what that is, but he get people apartments. <laughs> I got a list of people <laughs> that need furniture. He's an interior decorator to you. Yeah, right? Yeah, I do interior decorating. So now I get paid now only am I helping you get the apartment. I'm getting paid from getting you the apartment from the leasing agent. And I'm over here with the furniture guy and get a, a kick on the back end because I'm going to tell you, hey, listen, your credit is together. You can go over here and get 10000 in furniture. Now your condo is furnished. And now you just got paid four times. (laughs) Now you get paid four times. That's penthouse poppy. That's a business for anybody that's listening. (laughs) It don't matter what your background is. It don't matter. And it all started from you just suppressing one thing so somebody could be approved. Literally. That's that's realistically. I, I used to run that company, and that's where it started from. That's literally how that business started. You know Derek Grace? Yeah, I don't know him personally, but online, see him. Uh, that's that's our guy. Good friend of ours, EYL alumni. TG. What's up, y'all? It's the fourth quarter. It's a new month. And what better way to start it than to come and to join us at EYL University? Yes, the fourth quarter is where star players make a name for themselves. So come and join the number one roster. EYL University is the biggest platform for business in the universe. We have over 70 past classes weekly classes we have a private investment group on facebook which gives you access to our movie club our book club we also have bi-weekly real estate calls with mg the mortgage guy and monthly financial advising calls with none other than yours truly (laughs) so head over to eyluniversity.com right now and enter promo code eyl for 40% off of our annual membership. That's right. Don't wait. Don't hesitate. Head over. We'll see you on the other side. Let's do it. He posted, I remember he posted a post of yours Mm-hmm. And uh, he was like, I don't know, bro, but he dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, listen, I'm gonna tell you, I'm gonna tell you, right? I watch bro posts, and 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 I and I look, and I be like, what he? We we, we do different stuff, right? But I say, yo, he he give it up, like he not he not capping on nothing he says, like even from you know, I look, I don't care, I'm wearing diamonds. But you know, nah, but you know, even with the gold game, man, like bro vicious, nah, it's much respect. No, nah, no, nah, when he said that, that was real though. I, he actually got my attention with that. I'm like, nah, this dude is dangerous, man. Like <laughs> he's dangerous. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I'm exactly. saying? Like, it's a lot of you, you information is the most important thing in the world. Like, mm-hmm. cause it's like there's so much stuff that you can just change your whole your whole life, your whole your whole generation with just a few vital pieces of information. Yeah. That's all it takes. And there's so many of us out here leading the way, giving it up to us um, and giving the information up to really see how people could change their life. Like I just laid out, like we're on a public podcast and I just gave out a whole business plan off of leveraging one piece of information. Before that, I gave a blueprint. I hope they take notes. Like, listen, I'm giving you I gave the blueprint. This is how you clean your credit. Mm. Opt out. Use a 609 letter. Get familiar with companies like CFPB. It's the companies that regulate the credit bureaus. These are things that we need to know, information that we need. And 
I'm looking now and I go, we start looking and so many lives is changing off of information. Hmm. Yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> let me ask you, let me ask you yeah. another question. Um, you had an interesting thing where you said that um, turn a liability into an asset. And that really struck my attention because it's like you said, we've been programmed so long to think that everything is a liability on a certain level like that is not an asset, traditional assets like cars, for instance, right? Mm -hmm. It's like no matter, like we, we did a video about how to like put your car in your business name and take the deduction and all that. And a lot of people was like, that's dope. I didn't know any. But then there was always some skeptics like, well, it's still a liability. You're still wasting money on it. Yeah. Well, you broke down something, and that was kind of crazy. It got my attention to how you can actually turn, make money with the car, like running ads and Toro. <clears throat> can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So when it comes to that, one of the things is that, look, I, and it's Frank, and it, it probably rubbed people the wrong way. Cars are, are, are liabilities, right? That's a, 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 a 19th century mindset, right? Take 42 of Title 18, you know, I showed you that guideline range. If the judge says, no, nah, I don't like that guideline range, I'm going to do an upward departure. And if that's the case, okay, and there's statutory room to do that upward departure, the defendant has the automatic, automatic right to appeal. If there's a downward departure from that guideline range, same thing with the government. The government has, the U.S. attorney has the uh, right to appeal that uh, sentence automatically. Uh, of course, you can always appeal an incorrect application of the guidelines. It was just basically wrong from the beginning, and uh, uh, either party can uh, make that uh, appeal. Uh, where there's no guideline and the sentence is plainly unreasonable can be a basis for an appeal as well. Well, we have about at least 80% or, or so of the, of the federal criminal violations covered by the guidelines. There's a few out there that are not. You probably won't see many of those. But the plainly unreasonable would be the standard for appeal in that situation. And of course, if it was a an out-and-out out illegal sentence, which I dare say you very rarely see, but uh, that's another right to uh, an appeal. We have statistics uh, from 1997, in case you're curious about what actually the courts are doing in terms of uh, sentencing. If you look at uh, 97, this is based on four, uh, roughly 46,000 cases. Almost 68% of the time, uh, judges are sentencing within the guideline range. Above the guideline range, you know, these departures upward from the guideline range, 97.8%. And below the guideline range, these downward departures in 97 at 12.1%. 1998, there's an increase to 13.6%. And below the guideline range for substantial assistance is 5K1.1, which we're going to talk a little bit about later. Uh, for substantial assistance, 
the 97 number, 19.2%, the 98 number, 19.3%. So roughly the same. And that's been holding pretty steady, the 5K 1.1 rate over the past few years. Um, and the 98 cases based on more cases in 98, uh, almost 48,000 cases in 98. You know, with, with single count application, and we're going to start off with single counts. Later we'll talk about multiple counts, but if you don't understand single count application, you will not understand multiple count application. One thing to keep in mind uh, for, for you folks that haven't had experience with this is that the statute always trumps the guidelines. So if you go through this process going down the table, across the table, and you come up with some range, and that range says 12 to 14 years, but the defendant's convicted of a count with a maximum statutory penalty of 10 years, the statute's going to trump the guidelines. This guy cannot get any more than 10 years. That will be the sentence. Or if you calculate a guideline range that says give the guy two to three years, but the individual's convicted of an offense with a mandatory minimum of five years, that defendant will get the mandatory minimum of five years. Again, the statute will trump the guidelines. So keep that in mind because uh, it can be quite significant as to the count that has been pled to, for instance, in a single count application, because you may come in having the statute trump what the guidelines have called for. In Chapter 2, as you're working your way down the table, you develop a base offense level, which is a starting point for coming down the table from the Chapter 2 guideline. You have specific offense characteristics uh, that talk about certain aspects of this particular offense, and if those characteristics are applicable, they will send you further down, sometimes back up the table. And you have in some of the Chapter 2 guidelines, uh, what are called cross-references that basically say, okay, you've applied this Chapter 2 guideline and you came up with a number here, but the cross-reference may say, well, go over to another Chapter 2 guideline, apply that, and see what that number is. And sometimes you're directed to use that other guideline if the number is higher, or you're directed to use that other guideline under certain circumstances instead of the one with which you had begun. Having completed the Chapter 2 calculations coming down the table, then you move to what we refer to sort of as generic guidelines in Chapter 3. Uh, there are adjustments that further affect this offense level, sending you further down or back up the table. These include victim-related adjustments, role in the offense adjustments, obstruction adjustments, now, we're looking at single can applications, so at this point we're not concerned with multiple counts, but in the sequence of guideline application, next would be the consideration of multiple counts of conviction, if you did have multiple counts. And then the final Chapter 3 adjustment is acceptance of responsibility. Of course, the question is, which Chapter 2 guideline do you begin with? Uh, you've got a whole Having been a prosecutor for five years and a criminal defense attorney for more than 10 years, all the time I see cases where people 
find themselves suffering immigration consequences for a criminal conviction that they were not expecting. Situations where they go to court and their attorney says, hey, I got you a great deal. You're going to get time served. You're going to get out today. No jail time. Just you sign these plea documents. It's, it's a terrific deal. And, and, and they go through with it. They plead guilty. They plead no contest. And then a year later, sometimes five years later, sometimes 10 years later, they find themselves in removal proceedings about to be deported from the United States. Or they find that they leave the United States and they're not able to re-enter, or they're not able to naturalize and become a citizen of the U.S. So to the extent that you are not a citizen of the United States and you've been charged with a crime, you want to get an attorney who understands not only criminal law, but immigration law as well and can resolve the case in a way that not only gets you a good result in court, but that is not going to trigger immigration consequences. And go move their stuff, bring it back to you. They make them pay a deposit. They run it real nice. You can leave it at Home Depot. I leave mine's at Home Depot in a parking lot. Yo, you know what? You know, some people, they'll spend, you know, $100,000, $150,000 on, on an investment property. It's not going to give you three fifty a week. No, it's not. But you can buy a two, three thousand dollar car. Turn them cars into real estate, baby. Better than real estate. And I was just telling, I was like, I ain't gonna lie. Do you ever get an economy car and sit on it and nobody wants it? Haven't. I mean, I, I like, like a lot of my mentees used to ask me, like, what's the best car to get? I'd be like, all of them gonna go. You just want to do the. When it comes to economies, you want to do the ones that never really break down. Like like Toyotas. Come on, when you seen a Toyota broke down on the side yeah. of the street? Come on, bro. Them things last forever. Especially a Prius. And they good on gas. You fill it up with twenty dollars, that thing gets you all week. You know what I mean? So I just look for Toyota Priuses. Man, it's just super Hyundai Sonatas. Man, because it's I just put it on my insurance, go ahead and drive it, something happens. You don't you don't care. Don't you could care, care less. You know what I mean? And then you can I still put full coverage on all of mine just to take a little baby check that I'm gonna get. Mm. But it don't matter to me because I already know I know, like, if it, if in the rare occasion that it, before I make my money back, it crashes or something like that, which it doesn't. But if it were to, it's not a big deal. I only spent 2000 Like, for, I'm not saying just you have 2000 for I'm talking about I use my finance cars yeah. to get me up to where I was making enough money to go and buy cars cash. And then I did it, I did it over and over and over to where I got so many economy cars, they're going to keep going and going and going. Now, when they happen to do break down or something like that, I get them fixed, and then I keep them going. And if I if they done for, I already made my money back times tw- ten already. Yeah, and it's not a big deal to me. So I just you know sell it to the scrap cars, get money off from the scrap people, sell it to them, mm. then go get another one. Like it's not even a big deal because there's so many of those cars. Y'all got to understand that they make a, a a new model of every car every single year. Y'all know how many cars out here? Y'all know how many people go get something on uh, Labor Day, on a Labor Day sales and they can't handle it no more they want to give it away? Mm-hmm. Let me give y'all a couple games. Let me give y'all a couple games before we get out for this thing. So you talking joint ventures. You got people that can't handle their car notes no more. You know a way to make money with it. You take over that payment. You get the money with it. Or you can offer your people who don't know how to make money for themselves. Give them money every 
month to use their credit, get a finance car. So you helping them in two ways. You getting yourself money and you helping your people who don't know how to make money and giving them side money. That's a joint venture. Learn how to solve problems. If you start learn how to solve problems in this game, you will never be broke because it's so many people that need cars for stuff, different reasons. You know what I mean? You'll, you'll be getting slingshots. You'll be like, damn, why would I need a slingshot? Because you can drive it for yourself and then you can make money on it hourly. Mm. What, don't run out a, a slingshot for the day? Run it out by the hour. 100 an hour gonna make you a killing. Get three of them. They gonna get them three at the same time, I promise you. It's so many plays. It's like, get you trucks, use fetch truck. You know how many people need trucks for moving? If you that guy who just give it to them, look, I don't care if you beat it up a little bit. Now you're damn about this truck. Move your stuff. These dudes gonna rent them every damn day. <laughs> Y'all know how good these trucks. I'll be like, yo, I'll be so surprised. I'll be like, I was like, yeah, just you can you can ding it up a little bit. I'm not gonna make you pay if you ding up the back or uh, they'd be like, bro, I'm taking us to work every day. Y'all know how much money I make off these trucks, man. Come on, man, don't stop. Don't get me started. So solve problems, baby. And then you'll you'll go a long way. Help your people, do your joint venture method, broker deals with other people who who are in the rental car space. Maybe they might not be as good as you in marketing. Maybe they might not have the platform that the Dave Sham has. He could say, look, I got my rental cars going out for a hundred a day. Who need that? You feel what I'm saying? Or maybe they can't, they don't have that influence. So if you do have it, you can help them out, give them a minimum daily payment that they'll make, a minimum that they'll make every day when a car goes out, and then charge your fee on top. You know you got that clout, go ahead and use it. Solve mm-hmm. these problems. If, if they, you know you're the go-to guy, be that go-to guy. Mm-hmm. Be able to just do good business though, have integrity and be consistent. If you be consistent in any business, they'll never forget you. So every time they come in town, they're gonna send all their cousins to you, they're gonna send their sales to you, and they're gonna make sure that they rent with you because you were consistent and you do good business. If you do that, I, that's why I never worry about having customers because they come into, they dying for me. They hit my Google page, they hit my 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 Instagram, mm. they hit my business Instagram, they hit in, uh, my Toro, <laughs> my hire car. So I got them coming from all streams, you know what I'm saying? So that's the thing. And clearly word of mouth is passing around as well because I do good business. And I think of myself as a friendly guy and I, somewhere where somebody will want to come and feel comfortable getting the car. They know I'm not going to trick them and charge them extra fees. I'm only going to charge you for what you do. I'm not going to charge you for what I want. I'm not going to say, oh, I've been had this scratch. Let me get them. No, no. Right. We're going to be detailed on every time and I'm going to make sure everybody's happy. That's what I want. That's all I care. Everybody needs to be happy. I love it. Bitch, I appreciate you, my brother. Yep. Um, this was just a, a wealth of knowledge. Mm-hmm. I'm really probably gonna go get an I eight tomorrow. It's gonna be so dope. We're gonna pull up back to back. Once you do that, I was like, look, how much is the rap? Because you gotta rap it. Oh right? yeah, yeah. So get a good rap guy. And let me tell you another trick on the raps. Go to these if you got or if you are like a person it's the Apprendi versus New Jersey decision by the US Supreme Court last year. Uh, there the US Supreme Court talked about what is required in order to have an enhanced maximum statutory penalty. Because our video presentation today, however, is focusing on basic guidelines application, we will not be getting into the determination of statutory penalties or looking at recent case law developments. But for those of you that are interested in Apprendi, and I'm sure that virtually everyone is, Uh, The FJTN did an excellent broadcast just last month 
that looked at Apprendi. Uh, they did a great job. It had an expert panel that was involved in that uh, to include one of our sentencing commissioners, Judge Joe Kendall from the Northern District of Texas. Uh, so we certainly commend you uh, to, to watching that video. We, we think it's, it's, it's an excellent one. Uh, it will be rebroadcast on a couple of occasions upcoming uh, on the FJTN network. Uh, the first will be on uh, February the 14th. Uh, I assume that that's probably like some kind of FJTN Valentine's Day special. And then it will be shown again on March the 14th. Uh, on each of those dates, it'll be shown at both uh, noon and then again at one o'clock. Thank you, Rusty. We're going to move on to our final segment in just a moment. But before we do that, Rusty, um, I just wanted to ask you, what do you think is one of the most important principles to remember when we're applying relevant conduct? Well, I think the main thing, and, and you probably gathered it from the uh, video presentation, uh, was that uh, relevant conduct has to be done on an individualized determination uh, for each and every defendant that is uh, being sentenced and in the, in the, for which the guidelines are being applied. You have to go through this analysis for each and every one. Uh, and that's true even if you have multiple defendants convicted of just the same count of conviction because that relevant conduct may be different for each of those defendants. And you don't know that until you have gone through that analysis and that application. Uh, now I know that sometimes uh, if you've done it long enough, uh, it starts seeming maybe a little bit intuitive as, as to the analysis. Uh, but I think uh, always uh, a person applying the guidelines would do well to go back to the analysis and be able to articulate where in the analysis they found the relevant conduct to apply or not to apply. Uh, because if an issue is challenged, you have to be able to go back and to justify why you did or did not include something as part of your relevant conduct. Absolutely. Very good point. Okay, it's time to move on to our fourth and final segment of the videotape. It's going to focus on multiple count application and we're also going to give you a brief discussion of departures. Remember, if you have any questions, please fax them into us now. Once again, our fax number is 1-800-488-0397. Let's go back to the videotape. Of course, as you're applying guidelines, you've got to use the sentencing table, and you've got to come down the table to a certain point and across the table to a certain point to come up with your guideline range. And with multiple counts, of course, one of the practical aspects of it is, hey, well, if I've got multiple counts, what point do I use going down the table? If I've got multiple counts, do I have multiple points? You know, how do I, I got to have one place that I come down so I can go across from that place go out to find this one range. And the rationale for the multiple count rules, one is to determine the single offense level. By using these rules, you will be able to find that one point coming down the table that connects with that one point going across the table that gives you this one guideline range for your multiple counts of conviction. The commission in the multiple count rules is trying to keep from double counting, from punishing a defendant twice.
twice through conduct, really, has already been punished under one of the counts of conviction. We don't want to double punish. Uh, also, to provide incremental punishment. If someone, say, comes into court convicted of multiple offenses, uh, oftentimes people will get multiple punishments for multiple offenses, but typically it is, a, it is an equal amounts of, of punishment. A guy convicted of five robberies probably doesn't get the, the length of time under nine guideline sentencing, uh, five times the time that the guy who committed the one robbery. Rather, it's more of an incremental increase. And our guidelines work to give incremental increases. Yeah, you'll get more time for five robberies than for one, but you're not going to get five times the amount. You're going to get a little bit more for each of the additional what we call harms. And to limit prosecutorial impact. If the guidelines said, oh, every time you get a counter conviction, we're going to add so much more offense levels or so much more time or whatever, prosecutors say, well, in this case, you know, I can charge 20 counts of embezzlement. Uh, in this other case, I'll just charge one count of embezzlement. And boy, we came out with a whole lot different sentence here just based on purely the way I decided to charge this conduct. And the commission has tried to limit that somewhat in these multiple count rules. Now, as the commission said, we know that when you have multiple counts of conviction, you have multiple violations of law. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's one and the same. You violated the law multiple times with the multiple counts of conviction. But you don't always have... This kid's amazing. He's 18, he got a real estate license. I say, yo, by the time I'm 30, I'll be retired. I'm out of here. What, $14,000 check? $12,000 check? I had a 2006 Dodge Charger in 2006. Mm. I went and got an Escalade. Yeah. Oh, life is great. 12 months later. Oh. <laughs> One day you wake up. <laughs> the world is different. <laughs> People are coming in, right? I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell the truth, right? People are coming in now. And my broker goes, we're going to have to do loan modifications, right? He starts crushing it with the loan mods now. He's crushing it too but I'm getting chewed out because I'm seeing people lose their homes that I just sold homes mm. it's like mortgage was this it's now this what do we do oh loan modification meaning you sell me a home and then your company changes my loan no they were doing like basically taking it to banks to rearrange people's loans to do like kind of refis and depending on what part you were at mm. to get you out of that adjustable rate right getting people out of it but you charging people to get them out of the bad loan you put them in mm. yikes i moved to atlanta why'd you move to atlanta I wasn't making no money. Right. It was over. It was. And did you see Atlanta as an opportunity to sell more real estate, or it's just a different opportunity? It was a different opportunity. I met some people that was doing um, network marketing. Your travel biz, YTB. Okay. That was my first ever. Did you get a bag in YTB? Absolutely not. Really? Absolutely not. You know, you remember uh, Spencer Iverson? Something Spencer was killing it. I was under a guy named Keith. Mm. How to make it? Um, no, I didn't. Um, <laughs> but I got in, I got inspired, right? Right. 
I remember going to St. Louis and I seen these regular people who weren't celebrities standing on a stage that packed out the whole St. Louis arena. Mm. And I told my mom, I'm going to do that. I'm going to be able to pack an arena out to respect me when I come out and do something. So that's been my goal. I go, I remember seeing that. I didn't know that as I fast forward now and I go, only way you'll be able to do that is if you can positively impact people's lives. So you have to get into a position to where you can impact as many people as possible. So when I look at it now and I look at my business model, my whole goal is if you want to be successful, you'll only be as successful as the amount of people you help become successful. I have to make massive impact positively on people's lives. The more amount of people I can positively affect, more successful I'll be and the closer to going look at I can now put and go look at how many people I've been able to positively impact for sure for sure that's now my goal and it's been my goal for the last few years is how do I grow my impact I started out with financial literacy and um, credit coaching and things like that because I wanted to help people. Mm. I've helped fathers get funded to get their daughters heart surgery. Mm. That kind of impact. People who um, kids are getting taken and put into child protective services and we're helping them purchase homes or helping them get into adequate living situations, not understanding that they can finance furniture to have their home properly furnished and having everything there. That kind of impact. Mm -hmm. Then I go, I can only do so much. This is getting beyond me. I have more clients than I can have staff. Right. Okay. So we 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 fast forward. So you're a YTB not making no money. But yeah. how do you get into helping people with their credit? Get, I started working. I went through transitions, different com- different businesses. Atlanta. I got introduced to Atlanta. You know, anybody get introduced to Atlanta, you get introduced to. Get outside yeah. and go. Mm-hmm. So I got outside and I went. I'm on Craigslist. I'm doing cell phone repair. I go into. So you the, got in the cell phone repair after the YGB fiasco. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fiasco with that, right? So I remember I, even with YTB, I was like Marietta uh, Mall. I mean the flea market in Marietta. I went in there and bought Air Force Ones by the caseload from China, and I would drive around and deliver those. Mm, I right. was in that game. Right. So, game. you know, yeah, we yeah, doing yeah. the doing that. So, I did that, ended up into the cell phones. I started figuring that out. I go through the cell phone um, spin for about a year and a half, two years. That did really well when eBay was going on, buying screens from China, fixing them, right? Ended up opening the Boost Mobile. That crashed on us. I lost everything. Mm. I literally was, I moved in with my sister. Lost everything. Not only did I. Navigating the legal waters can be challenging and frightening at times. Being accused of a crime, either a business or a personal matter, finding the right attorney, while it doesn't cost anything to make that call, could cost everything in terms of outcome. When I came to Woolwich Law Firm, 
I found a team of professionals, assertive, aggressive, focused not only on the outcome, but also on the, the client. There were many nights, late nights, where I, I would pick up the phone and call members of the team, and I always got a response, and that's important. Finding a lawyer who just represents the outcomes and doesn't represent the clients can be terrifying. Really committed to not only winning the case, but also committed to making the experience one that puts the client in the best frame of light. What made this situation more uh, scary for me is the fact that being a high publicity at times, you people can say anything they want about you and it's your job as the person to hire the right law firm to protect your interest, your reputation, and your livelihood. And that's what happened to me. Accused of something that I absolutely did not do, I sought the best representation, not taking a chance on the outcomes, not taking a chance on my livelihood. Wolders Law Firm, again, committed to the outcomes, committed to the client. You won't be sorry. What you've got to do, folks, when it comes to this FICO score stuff, and people run around mouthing about that stuff all the time. Oh, my God. They have done such a good job at FICO of making you believe that that is an actual indicator of your success. Your FICO score is not an indicator of your success. All you've done is successfully pay payments and interest to the bank. It's the only way you get a FICO score. I've got an 880. Well, I'm sorry. That probably cost you about a hundred grand. I mean, really? You can get, your aunt could die tomorrow and leave you $10 million. You know what that would do to your FICO score? Nothing. Because your FICO score is not an indicator of your net worth. Your boss could walk in this afternoon and raise your income to a million dollars a year. You know what that would do to your FICO score? Nothing. Because a FICO score is not an indicator of financial health. It's not an indicator of a big income. It's not an indicator of a big net worth. It's not an indicator of a big investment portfolio. A FICO score is an indicator that you've borrowed money and paid it back a lot. And the higher your FICO score, it means the more it means the more you've done this over and over and over and over again. So this worshiping at the altar of FICO represents stupidity on your part. Stupid. Because you're using a false measure of success. It is not a measure of financial success. Unless you consider paying lots of interest and payments to the bank success. It's the only way that your FICO score develops. And case in point is, if you never borrow money, you'll never have a FICO score. Case in point is, if you pay off every single account and close all of them, and you have a net worth of tens of millions of dollars and you make a bazillion dollars a year, 
and your FICO score zero. That's me, by the way. Okay? I have a zero FICO score. I'm not borrowing money in 20 years. All the accounts are closed. They're not just zero balanced. They're closed. I don't owe a soul and haven't in 20 years. And plus, over 20 years. And so I don't have a FICO score. But here's how stupid our culture is. I can wander over here to the local apartment complex with some little 27-year-old apartment manager who reports to somebody, I live in Nashville, and they report to somebody in New York or Atlanta, and I fill out an application to rent an apartment, and because I don't have a FICO score, their, their, their thought train is so backward and stupid, they won't rent me an apartment. Now, I can write a check and buy the whole freaking complex, but I can't rent an apartment there. See, that's how stupid this is and how culturally backward it is. So, if your goal is to buy nice furniture for the bank lobby, then run your FICO score up. If your goal is to make sure that the windows are cleaned on that 100-story tower in the downtown skyline of your city, and that's a bank tower, if your goal is to make sure the window washers there get paid, then run your FICO score up. If your goal is to make sure the stock at General Motors or Ford or Lexus that their stock price goes up because their profit has increased because they've funded more car loans and made interest on you, then run your FICO score up. But if your goal is to change your family tree and become very wealthy and outrageously generous, if your goal is to have tens of millions of dollars in order to make sure that your family generationally is shifted and that you have the ability to be unbelievably outrageously generous, if that's your goal, then screw FICO. Why are you giving them money? Why are you giving banks money to run up a false measure of success? It's not a proper measure of success. But all these dadgum broke financial geniuses that work with you or that'll be at Christmas dinner in your family, well, you need to protect your FICO score. About how People, much? Um, about 3000 The most I paid for one was like 42 And I'm cool with that because they'd be good. They'd be like 2013s. Right. Uh, 2013 and up. So 2013 and up. It doesn't have to be that. Right. But that's what, if you want them to be using it for like Lyft and Uber, gotcha. you, you get 2013 and up because they starting to, you know, every year they make it to where your car got to be a higher year. Right. So where, where do you where do you find the people that want to get it for that particular purpose, like Lyft and Uber? Uh, you can put it on the, uh, they get it around in the higher car 
and and you also can get just around promote. or hire a car. That's yeah, a website you can do that. What? You can do that too. But for me, uh, I found it better on personal. So I went and did that, renting them out personally. So once you know people know you for cars, they know you for cars. Okay, yes, because I, I want to get into that mm-hmm. because one day I like to be, you know, do the personal. It's just I'm so afraid that if it's not on this, because first off, Toro's gonna take thirty percent. They killing it of your income. They winning. We. I was just talking to Brandon the other day. They winning. Like yo, they created a website where I can find you, and you give me your car, and they're in the middle and take thirty percent of all these transactions. And they don't own any cars. Are they going public? I'm not sure. And if they do, I'm probably going buy in. I'm invested. Yeah, in that for thing. sure. That's amazing. Yeah. Amazing business model. Awesome. But. That's the security. That's the security because if so, they crash your car, they steal your car, Tura takes care of it. Kinda. You gotta know. You gotta do it the right way. Talk that's what. Me. That's the only reason I made the course because I seen people that the well, uh, other than the fact that I wanted to actually teach the business that I do and make a million millionaires, I wanted to teach it because people don't know how to use Tura the right way. So they be a lot. Of, if you follow, if you get on the forum, it'll scare you to death. If you get on the Facebook, <laughs> if you get on the Facebook Toro forum, it'll scare you to death out of wanting to rent anything on Toro because you're gonna hear all the horror stories. But the only reason you see the horror stories is because people don't follow the steps and things like I teach in the course on the the pre trips, like what you need to have, like eighty plus photos inside outside. You gotta cover every part of that car because if you take a picture of the car from a wide range and it doesn't see that part that actually gets hit before the trip, they will not cover you. If you got tires under 432 tread depth and the customer even mentions the word tires bald, they're gonna investigate. And if you don't got paperwork from a week of or a tread depth reader on your pictures the day of that trip before they took the car, they're not gonna cover you. It don't matter if they totaled it, they don't matter if they stole it, whatever, they're not gonna cover you because Oh, well, not stole it, but they won't cover you if you had the tread def tires, the tire tread def messed up. So, so if they get in an accident, mm-hmm. right? Even if the tires are still there intact, you can go look at the tires to see if the tread depth is under four. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's on point. Yeah, yeah. If they just say out of their mouth, you know what? I don't know if the tires had good tread. They're just not going to cover it. And no, they're going to investigate it. So and once they investigate it, if you don't have your paperwork from the week of and you don't have a tread death reader picture with you with your damn tread death reader in that tire after they said that and they look at the pictures and they can't tell like you could you didn't take a picture of your tread. Right. If they can't tell that those are good tires. Which they won't because they're going to want to not cover it because you didn't follow the guidelines by using that tread death reader mm. or a coin to show how deep it is in the tire. Before the trip, they're gonna not cover you. It's just, it's, I've seen it. I mean, it happened to me before. So, um, like a, somebody smacked the car, it's clear. They admit to it. I was driving drunk, I smacked the car, I ran into the median. But they did say that the tires was bald. <laughs> Brand new car. Wow. You know what I'm saying? They ain't cover it. So then you gotta use your own personal insurance. You know what I'm saying? So. That sucks. Yeah, so what you want to do is 
And that raised your rate. That raised your personal insurance. You don't want to use your personal insurance, though, right? Yeah. Well, uh, I say like this. You never want to lie to your insurance company, but you definitely got to know that insurance is a game of words. So you can be covered in any situation. You never lie, but you definitely want to make sure you don't, you omit the right things. Give me, give me, give walk, walk, walk So let's say this. If you ask me, um, why was, why was Shams driving the car? And I say I gave him permission versus I let I rented the car to him. They won't ask directly if you rented the car to him. They're gonna just say why was you driving? He was a permissible driver. I gave him permission. This is true, but also if you rented it, that's also true as well. But I choose to omit the fact that it was rented. It'll be covered. Does that make sense? So it'll be covered if I give you permission. It's not going to be covered if I rented it to you. No, because it's commercial use, and this is your personal policy. And also, another people don't. Other people it's don't a know. Game of words. It's all about words. It'll always be covered, but you got to know what you're saying. Don't lie. They directly ask you, then tell the truth because yeah. you don't want to lie. But if they don't directly ask you, make sure you protect yourself by saying, "Yeah, I gave him permission to." The state of Nevada has a number of provisions which are designed to protect animals. Uh, most significantly is NRS section 206.150. Killing, maiming, disfiguring, or poisoning animals that belong to other people. And what's really important is that it covers not just dogs and cats, it covers all animals. If you are charged with killing somebody else's animal, you face a Category D felony and imprisonment of up to four years. If the animal involves livestock, it can be a Category C felony where the penalty is up to five years in state prison. King Von is one of the newer rappers in the Chicago hip-hop scene. With his hottest track, Crazy Story, doing over 30 million views on the World Star Hip Hop YouTube channel at the time of this recording, King Von is making a rather impressive name for himself in Chicago hip-hop. But what makes King Von's career even more iconic is the fact that King Von hasn't even been rapping for a year yet. He claims that the only reason he got into rapping was because he's done everything else, and not because he had some sort of knack for rapping. What King Von mainly means by that is that he's done almost everything when it comes to the streets. So all he has left to do is tell his stories and experiences through his music. Even though King Von doesn't have an extremely lengthy rap sheet like some of his peers, King Von definitely has a unique criminal history due to the outcome of some of his cases. Well, without further ado, here is an exclusive inside look at the criminal history of King Von. King Von's first run-ins with the law were not very well documented due to the fact that he was a minor at the time of his arrests. But luckily, he gave a little bit more detail of those arrests in an interview with DJ Smalls Eyes. 
In the interview, King Von mentioned that his first arrest was for an armed robbery where apparently he robbed someone at gunpoint and stole their car. When King Von was caught, the police sent him to a juvenile detention center where the charges against him were ultimately dropped due to King Von being so young at the time. But the only way to make this deal work out was that a judge required King Von to attend a boot camp for a certain amount of time. For the other three arrests, King Von gave almost little to no detail, but apparently one of them was for possession of a firearm. King Von didn't say how this case ended, but we can probably assume that he was sent to a juvenile detention center and got convicted, but under a certain type of condition where it gets taken off of his record after he turns 18. King Von also mentions that he was locked up at one time for 15 months and the time before that for 14 months. Vaughn gave no details as of why, but it apparently happened. King Vaughn's next arrest happened when he was only 19 years old, in 2014. According to authorities, King Vaughn was at a party when a guy named Malcolm Stuckey was steady eyeballing him. King Vaughn must have taken offense to this because he then grabbed his friend Michael Wade and left the party in a gray vehicle. Around 45 minutes later, King Vaughn and Wade returned to the party, but parked in an alley near the home. The two then got out of the car with loaded guns and headed to the front of the residence. Malcolm Stuckey and two other people were sitting on the front porch when King Vaughn and Wade opened fire on them. Stuckey and the other man fled down LaSalle Street, but both ended up getting shot. The other man on the porch was shot as well as he was attempting to run inside the home. In the end, three people were critically wounded, but Malcolm Stuckey unfortunately got shot in the head and died later that day. After the shooting, King Vaughn and Wade ran back to their car and fled. Both of them ended up getting arrested days later. During the investigations, over 20 shell casings were recovered, and Wade even admitted to police that he had fired a gun 15 or 16 times at one of the victims. King Vaughn, on the other hand, refused to talk to the authorities. The two were held without bond and were facing life in prison for charges of first-degree murder and two attempted murders. After sitting in jail for three and a half years, the trial finally began. The trial lasted a total of five days and the outcome is, honestly, surprising. Wade got sentenced to 28 years in prison, while King Vaughn was acquitted of all charges. After three and a half years in Cook County Jail, King Vaughn was free. Since his release, King Vaughn was staying out of trouble and began rapping. Vaughn also moved to Atlanta to be around his good friend Lil Durk, who is also an extremely successful rapper. With a promising future ahead of him and all while being surrounded by many other successful people, you would think that King Vaughn would never risk all that to commit some stupid crime. But sadly, that was not the case. Because on May 17, 2019, King Vaughn was arrested once again in Fulton County, Georgia. Sources say that King Vaughn was involved in a shooting that occurred on February 5, 2019 at the parking lot of the Varsity in downtown Atlanta. 
Officers apparently responded to a call at around 5.45 a.m. after gunshots were reported in the area. When they arrived, they found a 23-year-old man shot to the lower extremities. The man was found outside of his vehicle in the parking lot and was taken to Atlanta Medical Center in serious condition. Thankfully, he survived. After three months of investigation, police determined that King Vaughn was the alleged shooter and eventually ended up arresting King Vaughn moments after that conclusion was made. King Vaughn is still locked up to this day and is being held without bond. Sources close to the situation say that the man King Vaughn shot was attempting to rob him and that it was done in self-defense. Internet detectives are speculating that King Vaughn will get three years, while others say he'll get off completely. I teach uh, joint ventures and brokering method, right? So just like me and you actually spoke about this. Yeah. So what I do is- That's the is, car out there, the car vet. Right, that thing gonna that's go, yours. that thing, that's hotcakes. That's yours. So, you know, I'm you meant to bring you a keychain, so I normally get this keychain to people who get into the, the brokering or joint venture thing with no me. More. Just to make sure you know you're part of the clique now. It's I will, going. like a Rockefeller chain. Is that, boy? Like a chain. Yes, sir. Okay, we good. I like that. Yo, we got to get them. We got <laughs> to get them. Everybody who got a chain on, they mess with Mitch, and Mitch got the whips going Straight crazy. Like All right, so long story short, so I get into joint ventures with people, and I broker with other people who have rental car agencies. Mm -hmm. So you have Maddie J on here. We do this together as well. So he has cars that I use in my network as well and rent out as my own. How do you do this? You learn the game, you master it, you learn the ins and outs of it, then you can talk the talk, also walk the walk. So you know what you're doing if something happens, right? Mm -hmm. So if something happens to this car, I know exactly what to do because I've been running it for five years. So if I take yours, I know exactly what to do as well. I know the terminology to say, I know the, the contracts to have, I know the mechanics to know, I know the tire people, I know everything I need to know. So if I go tell you what I do, mm -hmm. what you gonna do? You gonna be like, I'm giving my keys to Mitch. Sure, I'm gonna let him run it. If, if me and you broker a deal, um, I know what you want minimum per day. I charge on top of that. We both making money, everybody's happy. If I got five years of clientele, why would you not? Why would you wanna sit there and build up your own clientele? Well, you can just give it to me mm. and go work and go have your, a, a dope podcast <laughs> coming here and you can go have to worry about the cars because Mitch worried about it because he got a whole staff and a whole lot out by the airport that can have as many cars as you need. You feel yeah. what I'm saying? Let me ask you real quick. With this network of cars, mm -hmm. what do you think, and not in your, in your personal pockets, but what's like some of your revenue per month from this car rental business? Me, uh, now I'm doing $200,000 a month, and it's getting pretty consistent. So uh, on the average, I average like about 120000 and that's what my CPA says. Mm. That's what the revenue is looking like, and that's just because – uh, I'm getting a lot of bookings. Like, I don't just have the car sitting there picking up cobwebs. We get creative. We get creative. We go to golf courses. We hand out pamphlets. We make it make sense. Y'all doing the work. Man, we doing tours. We doing rental, uh, luxury rental car tours. I get deals with the uh, the valet companies in front of the W, leave them parked in front of the W, and then let them know, hey, look, if you tell them the, they can drive this for with no deposit, how do they drive with no deposit? I'm be in the front seat with them. I let them get in it, charge them 150. We take a tour around 400 in a Lambo. Then they get in the rentals. They passing out. Oh, when I came to the W in Atlanta, this dude, Mitch, he had me with the Lamborghini and the i8. 
Man, come on, bro. I get creative. All right. So that, that I, I wanted to like give people like where we are today, but now I gotta take them back how we started. Okay. I gotta I gotta take them way back because he keeps telling people he worked for me. And he, oh yeah, he I work, work for me. this guy. This is like my low key my ex boss. <laughs> this is horrible. <laughs> hey, and I'm on my boy podcast going crazy. That's okay, weird. Hey, okay, just, just walk, walk me through where you were. Okay, so um, clearly, I used to work for this guy, but when I worked for him, I, I had a nine to five as well. So I, where? I used to work for the city of Atlanta. I used to do corrections mm. and I could fight. So I used to teach the defensive tactics as well. Mm. So I teach people how to shoot and I teach people how to fight. And I was in the jail and I was like miserable. Like I'm getting a lot of mental wear and tear because mm. you see a lot of horrible truths when you work in a jail, man. Mm. So I was working 16 hour shifts. Like they do mandatory voluntary overtime. So I'm working 16 hour shifts. Um, what were some of the things that really affected you walking, like just working there? Working in the jail, just seeing like how, how many of our people are there and it basically remind you of like slavery didn't end for real. Like this is where it is. Cause you get to see that they got these work details that they put the inmates on and they go out on the street and they do things. They go to the cities and they be go to the bando houses and fix them up, trim the hedges. They go out on the side of the highway, pick up the trash. They go out and clean out underneath the pathways where the homeless people stay, yep. and they clean all that stuff out. They're doing work, literally, for free. You get what I'm saying? So you can kind of see how the concept of slavery never ended. It's actually, we just numb to it because we don't think about where the people actually go mm. when they go to jail. So I'm seeing that firsthand every day. It's mm. tearing me up, and I'm a thinker. So I'm sitting there thinking the whole time, like, oh, my God, this is horrible. Yeah. Like, you know, it's inhumane anyway. Nobody should really be in jail. It's not even rehabilitative. They're not getting rehab when they yeah. go there. They're just going there for a second and just living in a horrible situation. Mm. You get know what I mean? And then you get to where I was working at, like they can't even take a shower every day. They got shower days. Just think about not being able as a grown adult, not being able to take showers when you want to. You gotta take when they tell you. You gotta eat when shower they tell days. you. Yeah, it was crazy. It was not It was different. So me seeing that every day tore me up. And then I'm associated with police right. now just working for corrections. Right, right. Which is beneficial to me now because I have my badge and when I get pulled over, I can show it and I'll get a ticket. <laughs> but it's not beneficial to me when uh, I'm associated with, with all the stuff like the Mike Brown, mm -hmm. Michael Brown and Trayvon Martin stuff. That stuff happens and you're associated with police. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I was dealing with a lot of mental battles. Yeah. So I, I was I was dying for a way to get out. But luckily, because I worked at the reason. Open and gross lewdness is a common charge that we see filed in Las Vegas. And usually it has to do with somebody who inappropriately touches somebody else, usually at a club or a bar, it's a very common charge. Often somebody who's charged with an open and gross is, uh, is someone who's been drinking, somebody who has no criminal record. Maybe they thought the contactor was invited and they misinterpreted social cues and didn't realize they were do so, doing something wrong. Or as a result of consuming alcohol, their inhibitions were, were low and they, they did something that maybe they wouldn't have done when they were sober. The significant uh, issue relating to open and gross lewdness in the state of Nevada is it's considered a sex offense. 
and it requires registration as a sex offender. So what might seem like a playful touching after a few cocktails could end up being something that requires you to register for life as a sex offender. So the consequences can be quite severe. I'm attorney Michael Becker of the Las Vegas Defense Group. If you've been arrested in Las Vegas or anywhere in the state of Nevada, call us at 702 Defense. We'd be happy to talk to you about your case. Anus. Committed in a cold, calculated, and premeditated manner. And lastly, it was committed by a criminal gang member. Now for that one, things as simple as tattoos can prove that you're a gang member. Even though we know that just because you have a tattoo doesn't mean that. And just because you call you and your friends your gang or whatever, doesn't mean you're a part of an actual gang. But the system likes to play loose and fast with the criminal gang charges. Funny enough, they're actually doing the same thing to Lil Durk and King Vaughn in Atlanta right now. But that's a separate story. Now here's how the trial is going to play out. Murder trials usually last 3, 5, 10 days. Depends on how much material they have to present to the jury. The first day is jury selection and maybe a witness or two. But in the Melly case, as far as we know, there are no witnesses. The killings happened on a lonely stretch of road near the Everglades, which is why the prosecutors desperately wanted Bortland to turn state and testify against Melly. Looks like that's not gonna happen. Day two will be workers from the crime scene. DNA experts, detectives, timeline witnesses, and if they had the murder weapons, they would maybe ask the gun shop owner or whoever to identify that yes, they did indeed sell this gun to Melly. But in this case, they can't because they don't have the murder weapons. See, the police believe that Melly shot both boys from the back left seat. Then he got outside and sprayed up the right side of the car to make it look like a drive-by. Then the detectives claim that Cortland Henry helped Melly with a cover-up, dropping the victims off at the hospital around 4 o'clock in the morning, fabricating a story that concealed Melly's involvement while he was able to later retrieve and dispose of the weapons. Now, I don't know if any of that's true. That's just what the police claim. The timeline goes something like this. At 3.20 in the morning, Melly and three friends were seen on CCTV video surveillance, leaving the New Era recording studio in Fort Lauderdale. They got into a Jeep Compass and drove off. Bortland was driving, Melly was in the back left seat. The two victims were on the right. When Corlin got to the hospital around 4.30 in the morning, he told police that they were victims of a drive-by at an intersection on Miramar Parkway. But the police say there were no reports of gunshots in that area. Instead, they believe the shooting happened far west, near a waste treatment plant. And to back this claim, the police are using cell phone records to say that Bortland lied about the path he took to get to the hospital. And they also claim they got the canine dogs to sniff the area, and that somehow shows that there were no other vehicles present on the road, so it couldn't have been a drive-by, according to the police. Now after all that, day three of the trial is usually the prosecutors will have the family of the victims to be the last to testify. Then that same day, the prosecutors rest 
and the defendants, basically Melly's team, calls their witnesses to establish the defense. Most of the time, you don't even need witnesses. They can oftentimes argue it successfully that the prosecutor just did not meet the burden of proof. The evidence has to leave the jurors firmly convinced. That's the purpose of the trial system. Then after day three or five or however long it takes for that whole process to go out, you would wait maybe 20 minutes, 20 hours, even 20 days, whatever it takes for the jury to reach their verdict. And then we're gonna find out if Melly's guilty or if he's innocent. Now, I know that all this together sounds like the police are gonna crucify him, right? It sounds like they're gonna win, open and shut. However, what people gotta realize is without a witness, without a murder weapon, and without DNA of Melly at the crime scene, the state has a tough case to argue, especially when Melly paid a big bag for some heavy-duty lawyers that know how to poke holes in the prosecutor's arguments. What I think could be really important is this alleged phone recording that Melly has on his cell phone admitting that he's guilty. Nobody in the public has heard it, but the prosecutors are hyping it up like he's on camera admitting that he did it. But since nobody's heard it, we don't know how detailed that is. Now, I want to know what you guys think is going to happen in the comments below, but keep in mind, this is not a federal case. When the feds come knocking, it's usually a 95% success rate. They get your ass. Pause. But this is a state case. And last I checked, like the murder conviction rate in Florida is 59% or something like that. And if you want to know how good Melly's lawyers are, they almost got the judge to agree to let Melly go on medical release during the whole COVID thing to a fan's house. Maybe the fan lived near the Broward County Jail or something, I don't know, but it's in the documents. Melly's team made a motion to send Melly over to a fan's house to recover from COVID away from the contaminated jail. And the dude, John Phillips, who's representing the victim's family, basically roasted Melly's team for trying to get that to happen. He also said that the fan allegedly had a young daughter in the house, which should disqualify him from housing someone who's charged with murder. Needless to say, the motion was denied. But this just goes to show that Melly's team is playing the win, bro. They'll try. The majority of automobile searches involve situations where a driver simply consents to the search of his vehicle. You, as the owner of a vehicle, have the absolute right to not consent to a search of your vehicle. If law enforcement believes they have probable cause, they may choose to search your vehicle without a warrant, or they may choose to detain your vehicle to such time as they can get a warrant from a judge for permission to search the vehicle. But if a law enforcement officer asks you for consent to search, you have the absolute right to say no. They may try to tell you, look, we're going to get a warrant. All you're doing is delaying the process. And only you can decide whether under those circumstances you wish to consent rather than avoid delay. My suggestion is to simply say no when asked by law enforcement for permission to search your vehicle and instead call your lawyer right away. Most commonly, we see consent come into play in sexual assault scenarios, but we also have a statute in Nevada that's commonly known as statutory rape, but in Nevada we call it 
statutory sexual seduction under NRS section 200.368. Now, the age of consent for sexual activity in the state of Nevada is 16. If somebody engages in sexual activity who is 13 or younger, by law, they are simply unable to consent in sexual activity. If they're 14 or 15, they cannot consent for sexual activity, but those charges are prosecuted as statutory sexual seduction. The penalties for statutory sexual seduction in the state of Nevada depend on how old the accused person is. If the person is 21 years or older, it's a category C felony that would subject an individual to up to five years in the state prison per allegation. If the person is under 21, it's a gross misdemeanor with a maximum of 364 days in jail per each count. Additionally, conviction for statutory sexual seduction can require an individual to register as a sex offender for life in the state of Nevada. Will sealing my criminal record in Nevada restore my gun rights? Getting a criminal record seal in Nevada does not restore the person's gun rights. The only thing that restores a person's right to own and possess a firearm in Nevada is a governor's pardon. Not all Nevada pardons restore gun rights. So when people apply for a pardon, they have to be sure to check the box on the pardon application indicating that they want to get their gun rights back. If a person has their gun rights restored under a Nevada pardon, federal authorities cannot later use the pardon conviction to prosecute him or her for unlawful possession of a firearm under federal law. But some states are stricter than the feds and do not allow people to have guns in their states even if they were pardoned in Nevada. So always research a state's gun laws before traveling to another state. Pardons are very rarely granted in Nevada. To increase the odds of success, people are advised to hire an attorney familiar with the pardon process to write their application and appear at their hearing. If you are facing criminal charges in Nevada, call my legal team at 702-DEFENSE. The attorneys at the Las Vegas Defense Group will do everything to try to get your case resolved as quickly and favorably as possible. I'm here with Premier Las Vegas criminal defense lawyer Michael Becker. And, and Michael, people call us all the time uh, and they ask us, with regard to battery domestic violence, uh, normally it's a misdemeanor, but sometimes it can be a felony, right? When is it a felony? There are several circumstances which can result in a battery domestic violence situation turning into a felony. Uh, first, if you have a third time battery domestic violence, that would be a felony. 
So if you have two, two prior domestic violence convictions and third is automatically a felony. That's correct. Also, if there's a battery with strangulation, that can be charged as a felony. If there's a, bad, a battery with substantial bodily harm, that can be treated as a felony. And if there's a battery uh, with use of a deadly weapon in a domestic situation, that would also be treated as a felony. Now, this, this substantial bodily harm, so you're saying even if the person has no prior record, um, if, if they cause injury to the, uh, you know, to the alleged victim in this case, then it can be charged as a felony. W what kind of injuries are we talking about? Because usually the police come, you know, maybe there, there's some redness or some scratches. I mean, is it superficial injury like that or is it like something real serious? Well, I would say if it's superficial injury, typically we expect to see those cases filed as misdemeanor mm -hmm. battery, domestic violence. But the more serious the injury is, the greater possibility that it could be filed as a felony charge. And ultimately, that's up to the discretion of the prosecutor's office uh, when they make a filing decision as to whether or not to file it as a misdemeanor or a felony. And, and even if it is filed as a felony, then um, as a criminal defense lawyer, many times you're able to uh, uh, sometimes get it reduced to a, a misdemeanor or, uh, or even get the, the case dismissed. That's right. A lot of factors come into play. Um, and it's not uncommon to see a, a domestic violence case filed initially as a felony, but negotiated down to a standard misdemeanor battery, battery domestic violence. Again, a lot's going to depend on the circumstances. Sometimes it could have to do with the willingness of the alleged victim to step forward. Sometimes it could have to do with the, the merits of the allegations and, and the fact that there's a second story uh, that the defendant might have that totally contradicts the accuser. The, so, the client may have acted in self-defense or the, the injury may have happened as a result of an accident. And, and oftentimes that occurs and it, it looks to the police when they get there like there was domestic violence. That's correct, and I would say the, the most common scenario that we see is that the initial aggressor ends up getting the worst of it. So maybe the person um, that was hurt was struck with a blow that was, that was thrown in self-defense, and the, the police come, and they typically jump tend to... Jump to conclusions. Yeah, they, they often jump to conclusions, and they often tend to arrest... The man. Well, often the man or alternatively the one that doesn't have the worst injury. But, but that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, one is the victim and the other is the perpetrator. That's correct. So you really have to, in domestic violence cases, you really have to sift through all of the evidence, speak to all of the witnesses to get the full story. And, uh, you know, if the DA realizes that they may have gotten it wrong, you present the evidence to them and often you can negotiate a reasonable resolution. And if the DA doesn't agree, then often you present your case to a judge or a jury and, and go for a not guilty verdict. That's correct. I think we see trials in these types of cases 
at a higher percentage than you would in other areas of criminal defense law. I'm attorney Michael Becker with the Las Vegas Defense Group. If you've been charged with battery domestic violence, we know there are two sides of the story. Call us at 702-DEFENSE. Let's hear your side of the story and let's see what we can do to help you get your charges reduced or dismissed. Chase does soft pulls. If you have a Chase credit card and your utilization rate shoots up on your other credit cards, don't use Chase because your score drops and your report drops. If your report drops, leave Chase credit card alone. If you start using it abruptly, they go do a soft pull and see where your report is at. I had a student who had a $36,000 Chase card. Her utilization shot, her score dropped some, and Chase dropped her from $36,000 to $4,000. She ran an Amazon business. She was doing her fulfillment with this credit card. Life stops now. Yeah. Oh, sure. this what you was making money? Oh no, life over. Damn. Because you weren't aware of the rules. And I tell you, you have to know which credit cards to use and when. Know if your credit drops, leave certain cards alone because then they'll come and revoke the limit. Hmm. And that's when I say, okay, I built out who's gonna give me what. They're going to verify on the backside, so I know, okay, we can get these cards, what we can do with them, how we can utilize them to our advantage. I know we're going to use these ones because they're going to verify up front, but they're never come, They're not coming back doing soft pulls later. We made it, we made it. Right. We got it. Okay, cool. We out of here. These are the things that I educate people on because we have to know how to use these credit cards. Yeah, how to play the game. Because they told us, you know what they told us. Credit cards are only for what? To buy, I mean credit. It's mm -hmm. to buy a house, get a car, and you get a credit card, and you only put gas on it. Right, <laughs> right, right. You right. only put gas on it. 30% utilization didn't right. even uh, apply growing up. It was just put gas on it, pay it off. Yeah. Keep it for security purposes only, emergencies only. That's out of the window now. Yeah. We, we live off of this. Yeah. I make doctor money off having good credit. Mm. That's very interesting. That's why I didn't get into another business. It became my business. Right. I started learning credit and I go, everybody's scared of it. Why? People started talking and teaching, but they still teach out of fear. I see other leaders who talk about credit still teach out of fear of what not to do and how to how to kind of. And it's like, yo, why do we have this fear mindset of something we all are are granted access to? Everybody born is granted access to credit. Why am I, Why would I be scared of it? Yeah. Let, let me. Why? Explain the difference between what you teach your. What What do you teach your students about debt? And the second part is, do you float a lot of debt yourself? So, debt. 
that's well that's I guess you're at a point where you're making more money but no debt that's the that's the issue of why we leverage credit right mm -hmm. if i can leverage credit to eliminate my debt we won't have any see if i can make money off of credit cards mm -hmm. when do i go into debt make money off of credit cards remember i told you you can sell trade lines yeah. okay if 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 you got a credit card in your pocket and it, it makes you $6,500 every 60 days. When do you go into debt? Because that's realistically what people make $3,500 a month. Though. Yeah, it's legal. You have to know this is the point, right, where I tell people is that certain banks, they will tell you, frown upon it. They do. You have to know which institutions allow you to operate. Mm. That's the fear part. The people want the game. People don't investigate. They go, oh yeah, you can Google it. People Google it. Are trade lines illegal? No. You're gonna get somebody say they're frowned upon, or certain banks prohibit the sale of this. They do. You have to know and research the banks that are out here. People think that, oh yeah, what banks are doing this, and they go and they look at American Express. American Express doesn't report history. People don't know the rules of the credit cards. American so, Express doesn't report history? No. So if I added you to my American Express credit card, you won't get the history of it. But they'll give me 99 authorized users. They won't report the business or the per Because I, I, I got some people on my personal and it raised their score. Like my family, my mom. Yeah. Like that. It helped their score because it added a positive account. It positive helped with their account. utilization. It they helped help with, history. yeah, and it helped with the, a limit what you put them on. So if, especially if they don't have credit cards, it definitely shoots them up. Gotcha. But it gotcha. doesn't give them how long you had it. If you look at it, the start date was the date you added it. Yeah. Other credit cards, they'll give you oh, history. Oh, I get it. So. They won't assume my history. They'll be able to get the car and start building their own history. Yes. But they won't get mine. Got yes. it. Getting a battery domestic violence record seal in Nevada is a long and convoluted process with many steps. It also depends on where in Nevada the person was arrested and which court handled the case. That's why it's recommended that people retain experienced counsel in order to help do a record seal for them. In general, the record seal process requires the following. One, the person has to get a printout of his or her police record called a scope. The record must come from the police agency which arrested the person. There's usually a small fee associated with obtaining a scope record. Two, the person has to complete a petition for record seal, which is a several page document. Then the person submits the petition along with the police record to the prosecutor's office, which brought the battery domestic violence charges. It's important to note that prosecutors rarely contest record seals unless the person is ineligible to receive one. Three, if the prosecutor agrees with the petition, the next step is to submit it to the court, which heard the battery domestic violence case. Note, 
judges rarely deny record seals as long as the prosecutor has signed off on them. Four, if the judge grants the record seal petition, the final step is to mail file stamp copies of the judge's order to seal the criminal record to all the agencies in Nevada that have a record of a person's battery domestic violence case. Examples of such agencies include the Nevada Criminal History Repository and police stations. This also requires a fee to be paid. This entire process can take several months. Note that the prosecution is very particular about record seal petitions. They will deny them if the petitioner makes a small procedural mistake on the petition that may have nothing to do with the merits of the case. But even then, the petitioner may correct the mistake and resubmit the petition. It's also important to note that some agencies won't recognize a judicial order to seal records unless it's been embossed with the official court seal, which also costs extra. You don't have to be a resident of Nevada to get a record seal. Anyone who has a criminal record for battery domestic violence in Nevada may petition to have the record sealed, even if he or she doesn't live in the state. But out-of-state petitioners are especially encouraged to retain local counsel because the process requires physically dropping off the petition at the prosecutor's office and afterwards with the judge's clerks. Unfortunately, the record seal process here in Nevada is time-consuming and complicated so it's always encouraged to obtain the assistance of competent counsel in helping you to achieve a record seal. If you were arrested for battery domestic violence or ultimately you were convicted and would like to have your record sealed, call us at the Las Vegas Defense Group and we'll explain how we can get your record sealed. Chris is in New York City. Hey, Chris, how can we help? Hey, Dave, hey, Ken. Uh, great to be on the show. Thanks. How can we help? Yeah, um, uh, real quick, I just want to give a shout-out to my girlfriend, Maria Jose. She told me to call in. Um reason I'm calling is because I've got a lot of friends who are buying into cryptocurrency, and, you know, my investments are all in mutual funds like you recommend. Um, and I'm hearing about, you know, Bitcoin, Dog or Dogecoin and all these other things. And I, I just wanted your thoughts on how to respond when people try to pressure you to invest into this stuff and maybe even get your thoughts on cryptocurrency in general. Okay. I wouldn't do it. Why? Because I think it's still very speculative. We've already seen big highs and big lows, and I think it's still rocky. I do think that crypto is coming to stay. I think right now it's a lot of speculation. And until it gets adopted and we start seeing businesses move that way, I'd I'd stay on the sidelines. And it's not a part of our investment strategy at Ramsey Solutions either. So there, there's that, too, which, Dave, you're far more versed in that well, than they, I am. But know, I it's had an, it's had an incredible year. Yeah. People made a lot of money out this year, without yeah. a doubt. No question about that. Um, but they make a lot of money on cocaine, too. <laughs> um, right. And they make a lot of money on, uh, you know, playing futures. 
and they make a lot of money at, at the blackjack table, and they make a lot of money betting football. But these are not investment strategies. That's correct. These are these are uh, things that you can jump into or jump out of that are uh, uber unbelievable high risk. And so the problem is, is that people don't perceive the risk in Bitcoin, and it's there. It's 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 a it's not a, it's not fully adopted. They made a lot of money this year. Made a lot of money in gold a few years ago too. And I'm telling people not to buy gold. And all the gold bugs are going. Dave Ramsey's an idiot. He doesn't understand. No, Dave Ramsey completely understands. I've lost my butt in a bunch of high risk investments over the years. I quit doing it. I don't like having to start over. It's too expensive. So if you want to start over, play crap that's high risk. If you don't want to start over, do what you're doing. But you're not going to convince friends who are making a bunch of money that they're stupid. Just let them be stupid and smile. It's okay. I'm Las Vegas criminal defense attorney Michael Becker. Ever since the 1 October massacre in 2017, when hundreds of innocent people were killed or injured by a lone gunman at the Mandalay Bay, Nevada lawmakers have been reevaluating how the state regulates weapons. Here are five things you need to know about the current state of Nevada firearm laws. One, a background check is now required for nearly all gun sales, including private and gun show sales, unless the purchaser has a CCW permit. Two, you do not need a license or registration to carry firearms openly in Nevada. Three, under NRS 202.350, you do need a CCW permit to carry concealed handguns in Nevada. Carrying concealed without a current invalid permit is a felony. Four, there are certain locations where guns are nearly always prohibited, such as schools, child care facilities, and airport secure areas. And five, the only way to get firearms rights restored once they've been lost due to a past felony conviction is through a governor's pardon. If you or a loved one is facing criminal charges in Nevada, call my legal team at 702 Defense for a free consultation. The prosecutors are working with right now. So they have somebody that obviously is talking to them and has been talking to them over the last two months. And on this gun, here was the other big question and one of the reasons that I wanted to do the Facebook Live to explain this, because I was, you know, I'm educating myself a lot of times when I'm doing these stories and what I learn, I, I love to share with you all because so many of you make comments and then, you know, sometimes we'll, we'll put everything together and we kind of get to a better place. We get to more, you know, we get more information. I know what questions to ask. A lot of times you'll bring up points and then those are questions that I'll ask the people that I'm interviewing or whoever's giving the press conference. So in this particular case, um, the gun, this this Caltech 9mm semi-automatic handgun, had DNA from the dead bodyguard, it had DNA from Troy Ave, and it had DNA from Taxstone on it. So how do they look at it? The way they write it in the court papers, they go, there's a billions and billions and billions, you know, how many billions of chances 
a probability that it's this person's DNA. Um, but what they said with the gun is the, the placement of the DNA and some of you law enforcement and investigators and detectives, uh, detectives will understand this better than I, I do. They said the placement of the DNA on the gun gives you a much better idea of who had actual possession of the gun. So, for example, with this gun, in this case, in in these in these court in these court papers that we got and that you know that I read, of course, obviously a couple times, they say that the DNA from Taxstone was found on the trigger of the gun, that it was found on the grip of the gun, you know, where you put your put your hand around it and that it was also found on the on the uh, bottom on the butt end of the clip or the magazine that gets gets that, that gets you know however that gets put into the nine millimeter handgun so his DNA was in places that made them think almost without any shred of a doubt according to what the prosecutors say that without any shred of a doubt that this was Taxstone's gun that he pulled the trigger. The prosecutor said in court, in open court, we believe Taxstone fired the shots that wounded these th three people and killed the bodyguard. He didn't call him the bodyguard, but he said Ronald, Ronald McFadder. And our condolences, my condolences go out to Ronald McFadder's brother, Shanduke McFadder. He's been a partner with ours in our push for peace um, efforts with the youth and also with our Hot 97 audience. And I know they've been going through terrible, terrible loss. So my, my condolences again uh, to you, Shan Duke, and to your family, but and to Trish, but um, and your babies. But uh, I think the, the main thing about this is that there's a, there's a lot more to this case. So it's very convoluted, it's kind of crazy. And the other crazy thing that you need to know about it too is Here's this man lost his life, uh, Ronald McFadder, and basically this whole this whole beef, if you want to call it that, between Troy Ave and between um, Taxstone started over social media. It was insults, it was words, it was "Don't come at me, do come at me, I can handle it." All these kinds of things. So it's a very sad situation that all this had to happen behind it. Now, Taxstone is in federal custody at the moment. The judge today, uh, Judge Peck, said that he was going to grant uh, a bail package. However, the other thing is that now we found out, I just found out a few minutes ago, that the prosecutors appealed the bail. They said that Taxstone should not get bail because he has uh, two previous felony convictions, more than 20 arrests, that he's a flight risk, and that basically he belongs behind bars until they figure this whole thing out. So that's where we're at. They're going to go back to court in the morning, on uh, Wednesday morning, and they're going to see how everything's going. And uh, the prosecutors are going to say, Judge, we don't think this guy should get bail. Ken Montgomery, who's the attorney for Taxstone, is going to argue he should get bail. And this bail package should stand, and that's where we are with it. But um, I have an interview that's here. I have to go do the interview. And I want to invite you, all of you, 
Uh, tomorrow we'll be do tomorrow morning we're going to be recording a new episode of Street Soldiers. We're going to be talking about the Trump presidency, what it means for urban America, and also what it means for civil rights. And we have a very well balanced panel. I'm going to go do an interview with uh, somebody right now for that. And so we're going to have a very exciting Street Soldiers show for you on Friday night at 10:30 about the new president love him or hate him he's going to be the new president and people have to deal so we're going to be talking about how people are dealing so they're going to be keeping it longer so these people that are keeping their cars for three four five months there's cars that i got that i haven't seen in months because they're using it out for either um uber driving or they just want the car longer some people might say wait why don't you just buy the car some people have cash flow gaps they don't have a bunch of income all at one time, but they get paid every now they and then. They want a nice car, but they can't show the bank that That's they reason. make this type of money. That's another reason. They got they can't no proof got of income. You. No proof of income. Some people don't want a car in their name. Some people don't can't even get a car because their insurance, they can't get no insurance. They got a DUI before. They can't get any insurance. There's so many situations and circumstances people are in on why they need to rent a car. And I did research on all that, so I know who to serve. Mm. Some people say, well, I don't I don't want to be on hire car. How can I get Uber drivers? There's a place where you can find, guaranteed to find Uber drivers sitting there chilling. Airport. Go to the airport and say, hey, how much you paying for this, this car that you got from Uber? Sometimes Uber provides cars for people mm. and charges them directly the monthly fee. Right. So you ask them, how much they charge you? And they charge me $380 a month. I got a car that's better for you, better year, Yo. and I'm gonna charge you fifty dollars less. I'm about to ask my boy because he he actually drives for Uber. And ask him how much he's paying. I didn't know. Is he driving his own car? Because if he's driving his own no, car, no, he got it from Uber. Oh, yeah, see, find out. And oh. all you gotta do is tell him. Well, I got a cheaper car for you. So if y'all can, 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 can oh, hear this, we were live. Oh, we live. Say less. <laughs> Yeah, bro. Oh, this is gonna be good. Real quick, um, you you rent your car directly from Uber? Um, it's through. Well, um, I had it for a long time. Um, uh, I'll call you back and tell you exactly what it was. I can't. Oh, would you? Oh, yeah. Are you in a ride right now or something? Okay. I'm actually getting a whole change. So how much do you pay on on the car, the rental car the car you got from them? Um, I think a normal thing is like two twenty five a week, but I pay like um eighty a week. How'd you do that? Golly, because I know somebody that um works there. I actually met somebody and got a little relationship with them. They, they gotcha. Just, yeah, they just, they just how long, did something. I don't know. How long, how long were you paying two eighty a week though? Two, two twenty a week. I yeah. was, it was like two twenty a week. That was when I had that black car. Remember a long time ago, I picked you up at Lexus. Yeah. How how long were you paying for that? Or how long did you do oh, that? Well, as long as you have a car. Um, I actually wrecked that car, and then. <laughs> Yo, listen, I don't see that, but how how long did you have the car, though? 
I think about four, four months or something. Paying two twenty a week. Uh-huh. So quick, eight eighty a month. Uh-huh. Okay. How much you think that car note was? The actual car note was. Four hundred. That car had to be nothing. Two hundred. Goodness gracious. Okay. What you? What are you saying? Was you? You saying like I was getting screwed? No, no. I'm just about to get a car and put it on Turo and rent it out to Turo drivers. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. But it, the difference is, um, the tour drivers, they're just going to ride around in the car. Not Turo, I mean uh, uh, Uber. My yeah, bad, Uber. Uber. Oh, Uber drivers. Oh, that's okay. that's that? I'm, Yeah. Oh. I almost said his name. Mr. Let Go yeah, in the but, building. Uh, so, they're going to say his name. Hey, All right, listen. It out. <laughs> All right, so, um, yeah, so I'm about to get a car and put it on. Um, hire car. Put it on hire car So for Uber drivers uh-huh. to drive. You know a lot of drivers that do that, right? Do what? That Not rent cars right. from from Uber and these other places to drive. Nah, uh, I don't know nobody. How'd you know? How'd you get it? How'd I get what? How'd what? you get your car to drive for rental on on Uber? Uh, Uber? They, yeah, they, they, they um, have the like, service. It's, it's, it's a little advertising thing, and it's like three different companies that you can work with. Yeah, gotcha. Um, they plug you in. Uh, then you just hit that company, but I don't remember exactly the name of the company. It was like three different company, and I just did it. And then gotcha. boom, yeah. But at, after a certain amount of time, I gained a relationship with somebody, so I don't really pay nothing. Gotcha. I gotta, Cause I ain't gotta pay insurance. Like I ain't gotta pay for this oil change. I ain't gotta do nothing. Mm, I like that. So like, I like that. Cause overall, eighty dollars a week. Uh, it's probably somebody that bought their car. It just, it just, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because the thing about it, just like I said, I wrecked one of their cars, and I just would have got another one. <laughs> right. Oh, you, you said you still have the other car? No. What? What other car? No, the you one. Only, you, you only drive the one, right? Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. All right, for sure, for sure. All right, cool. All right, that's that's all I needed. I appreciate it.